Crash Chords Podcast. I'm your host, Steve. I'm John. And I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And this is the Crash Chords Podcast. I said that already, right? Yeah, yes, I, I believe so. You. Okay. Yeah. I uh, I mean, are could we be anywhere else? Are we somewhere else? Are we anyone else? Are Wait, are you saying that I'm not me? I'm You're... trying not to make the obvious <laughs> I am the walrus joke right now. This is terrible. You're killing me right now. Are you? you we are we? <laughs> you were? I am How many me, pronouns are you? is me. You screwed up the word. Get uh, out. Just, I don't care. This oh, I was house. being Get belligerent. I just, I was just being well, a jerk. I'm, I'm glad you're on I Am The Walrus because actually this is a kind of a weird album we're doing today. And that was a pretty weird track. Is that a segue? I think we should go with that. We're, we're no, a segue is a device with two wheels on it that you lean to make it move. Now that's a segue. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. All right. Today, of course, we arrive at another one of my album picks. Uh, actually, I want to get this out of the way right now. My intent was not to pick a band in these soil genres. So when I said weird, we're getting weird. At least not at first. That was not my intention. My intention, as I stated in our Chile Gonzalez episode, was to branch out and find some more contemporary classical. But I wanted to roll the dice a little bit, because for once I actually was in the mood for some modicum of fusion in my life. And so, where do I go? Where have I been? Where do you think? Prague! A Prague listing that has actually served me well these past few months. And what did I notice but that in one of the very first bands in that list that had the qualifiers of classical and progressive rock also happened to have another qualifier right next to it, and that was Soil. Uh, at which point I said absolutely we're doing this because of, well, our little project from earlier. But yet, still, I want to somehow find a way to give myself credit for coming up with our homework assignment. Our which homework led you to assignment. This. So that's why it's kind of surprising, because it was pretty recent. You remember our little genre game we played? back uh, in episode 226, where our homework, as Matt so gallantly assigned to us, was to present a few weird and wild genres for general awareness. And of course, soil was one of the genres I mentioned. So it's like the old saying, where you never notice a mattress commercial until you suddenly need a mattress. And so you got mattresses in the brain, and they start popping up everywhere. Well, it's just like that. Exactly like that. Except with music. Except with music. And, and a very, very weird <laughs> and not genre. not mattresses at all. A weird genre at that. Exactly. So this gives me an opportunity to recap and provide a slightly more thorough profile of that genre. Soil. And this is more for general knowledge purposes, because today's artist, who we'll definitely get to, does identify with other things. But Soil, Soil, spelled Z-E-U-H-L, although the Anglicanization is probably Soil, even though they kind of say Soul all the times. It sort of sounded more like Boil. Soil? I don't know. I'm, I'm just breaking away from this. We're going to say soil. We're going to decide on that, all yeah. three of us, for the sake of this episode. Um, soil translates to celestial, although I challenge you to guess the language. Good luck, because that language is Kobayan, or Kobayan. It ain't real, of course. It's, it's, the, it's not a naturally occurring language. Much like the maligned Esperanto, Kobayan is a constructed language, and it was constructed by Christian Vander of the French band Magma in 1969. And its usage as a language is pretty much limited to the lyrics of that band's work, and also some ensuing bands who also followed in their footsteps. But it's all part of the mythology, you see, because Magma's debut album told the story of refugees from a future Earth who fled and settled on the planet Kobaya, and so of course they'd all speak Kobayan. 
but what's interesting is that apart from basing this language in part on Slavic and Germanic languages, and also on the scat yodeling vocal style of American avant-garde jazz singer Leon Thomas, which is incredibly specific, and that begs a little bit of comparison, Vander actually wanted the language here to parallel the music. He wanted it to flow as if it were a musical composition in its own right. And that's a fascinating concept, because I generally tend to prefer instrumentals, mainly because there's something almost inherently fourth wall breaking about the presence of lyrics, like this glistening world of texture and enchantment in the instruments that just transcends storytelling, all of a sudden is just crashed down burning with the lyrics, because it's like, oh, it's just a regular story with normal people. So just that idea of actually constructing the not only the lyrics, but the language itself to have ingrained musicality within it, that just leaves me incredibly curious. But what's even more perplexing than this is that at its core, Vander invented it because he felt his native French simply wasn't expressive enough. Let me repeat that sentence. French was not expressive enough. Okay, I took French. Le François n'était pas assez expressif. <laughs> I took French, and I can definitely understand it because Bullshit. of... No, no, because of, its, because of its, uh, like, roots in Latin language and the rigidity of its pronunciation that does prevent it from being very expressive outside of the correct pronunciation. Yeah, I can under, I can understand that. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't speak French, but I can tell you that you could probably insult my whole family in French, and I'd still sit there in a drooling haze. Well, I mean, if Eddie Izzard in comedy has taught me anything, French is you know pretty much spiky in French. Spikean and f***ing French, okay. as he puts it. Um, well, enough of the language. What was their music like? Uh, well, considering, and I'm all on magma right here, because this, this is really the origin of Soil as a genre. Well, considering that Christian Vander wanted to fill the void left by the death of John Coltrane, you can bet your ass it was pretty jazzy. But it found its niche probably more with prog rock fans than with anybody else at the outset. Then again, remember, this band is also arising at the dawn of prog rock itself in many ways, so everything is considerably less compartmental at this stage. To be blunt, it's a fairly manic sound, and it's driven by a bit more of a conceptual fantasy, I guess, than your run-of-the-mill prog band. Here's a quote that I mentioned last time we were discussing this. Dominique Leon of Pitchfork magazine once said of Magma's 2004 album that Soil sounds like, well, what you'd expect an alien rock opera to sound like. Massed chanted choral motifs, martial repetitive percussion, sudden bursts of explosive improv, and just as unexpected lapses into eerie minimalist trance rock. Huh. That, I mean, being on the other side of having listened to this album that we're doing today... That, that, a lot of that makes sense. Well, she's specific, it, at least, and yeah. I, we like specificity, so good on you, Dominique. I, I, think, I think I've discovered the next genre I'm bringing on, which is minimalistic trance rock. Minimalistic trance rock. Yeah, I'm well, going to find something. At least that's, One of that days is a small something. component of today's genre. But uh, anyway, all this talk of magma, you might be assuming at this point that magma basically is soil and that soil is magma and that's the end of it. Well, for sure they coined the word, and for a short while, yes, they were likely the only member of their own genre. But that was only until band members started to split off and started their own groups until various cult followings and cultural dissemination, blah, 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 blah. And then the soil tree has just been steadily, albeit slowly, growing out. Outward. Uh, most of them started in France at first, and then, quite interestingly, Japan. And today, pretty much anywhere. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that will always bring us to our good old nugget of the internet makes everything 
available, and so yeah. you can find well, just like al- our- although in this case it started well before that. This sure. when I say cult following, I kind of want to emphasize that because that was a thing well before the internet. Sure, sure. And that was really like some of these guys started back in the seventies when Magma was still pretty earlier in their career. I'm mostly commenting on the anywhere comment you just made it, that you can find it anywhere. Right, is probably because also the internet makes it easier to find anything. Right, and so therefore, like we were able to, or you specifically were able to find soil through the research that I spurred us. Today on. you can find anything yeah, just yeah. by saying, hey, weird stuff. I, right. I don't know. I've had a lot of difficulty finding specific things on the internet as per my job to find really esoteric and unusual toys and what they're worth and information about them and things like that. You also starting, hate Google. Openly. I'm having issues about Google. You've analytics. always had issues about Google. Well, it's because of the way they actually do their hierarchy of what gets put first and you can pay to go first and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, back to music. <laughs> yeah, no. And for all you Google fans out there, you can send your hate mail to john.sanders at crashboards.com. It's a first. I'm so happy. It's going to go down the line. Eventually we'll find something for them to hate mail Matt about. I'm sure it exists. Well, I guess the question here is how how closely did these bands ring true of Magma? Well, I'd have to know a little more about their discography in order to prove or disprove that. Some bands, I'm sure, explicitly follow in Magma's footsteps, and others do so no more, perhaps, than a pop rock band follows in the footsteps of the Beatles. Like, yeah, sure, it's there if you squint, thanks for laying the groundwork, but at a certain point, it's all kind of ancillary. It's comprised of a bunch of unique artists trying to make their mark, uh, bring their own flavor, and of course, in the process, pay homage to the artist at the same time. So here's a list of genres that often get fused into modern soil, and not knowing the full discography of Magma, they may or may not have been employed by the group from the get-go. It's a mixture of musical genres like neoclassicism, romanticism, modernism, and fusion. There's often an oppressive or discipline-conveying feel, marching themes, like I said before, throbbing bass, ethereal piano, and brass. I mean, that all checks out so far still. Even uh, though not got... the brass, not the brass. There's not nope. brass. There's only nope. saxophone here, which is oh, often yeah, confused. True. To the layman is being a brass. It's a red wind made out of brass, though. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, continue on. So for anyone who's just sold on the genre at this point and is ready to unleash themselves on a given discography, well, here's a few veteran bands worth diving into. Magma, naturally, goes without saying. Zao, or Zao. I think it's Zao, though. Uh, There are actually two bands in this department. One is French and nearly as old as Magma itself, and then another was formed in 1993 in West Virginia. I think you want the former. (laughs) I think that's the the Zoyal one. But just to expedite, this bondage fruit is another one. Upsala, Kenji Hayake, uh, Honey Elk, Ruins, Music Noise, or if you're looking for something a bit more modern, then there's Setna, Zing Sa, which is related to Setna, five W's, I think it's five U-U's, uh, and then, <laughs> that's how it's actually spelled. So, and then there's that's like there's a video game called V V V V V V V V V, and it's literally that's the name of the game. Oh, Well, actually, then maybe this is five U-U's. That would be exactly phonetic, and I don't have to say W's. I said it wrong in another place in which I mentioned it on this series. I'm gonna get to that in a minute. But yeah, there's also Neom and Rune. I could go on, but just bear in mind, this is still a very challenging list to compile. Uh, On one hand, you could spend a lot of time just exploring the direct offshoots of magma, and that's neat and all, but it's a little bit insular. And on the other hand, you could just keep going down the rabbit hole of far-removed artists, their interconnected careers, arbitrary meta-tags, and there might come a point where I'd wonder if it's truly Zoil or not. Truth be told, I have to read up on it further. But there's certainly nothing implicit about it in regards to one band, and that's Korima the Los Angeles-based ensemble behind today's project, an album called Amaterasu. 
Uh, these are true Zoyle disciples, it would appear, and although we may not have the background to know precisely from which areas of Zoyle they draw from most heavily, they at least know that, and that's all you need to know. And I'd like to read a little bit from their webpage right now, if I may. Um, you may. You're not going to stop me? Okay, good. No, no. Karima. I, I, I won't stop you. <laughs> All right. They, Karima is a soil rockin' opposition ensemble, and brief interjection right here before I continue in this. Wow, you're interrupting yourself I'm now. I'm interrupting myself. Hey, John, you want to go take a break? <laughs> <laughs> Interruptception. <laughs> Miraculously, Rock in Opposition has made its appearance on this series as well, back in episode 195, when I brought Death by Water by Yugen. I briefly touched on it back then, explaining that it was sort of a collective of musicians that supported each other, dating all the way back to the 70s. Uh, Francisco Zago, Yugen's composer, identified with that, and there really is quite a bit of crossover between Rock in Opposition and Soil. In fact, as I recall, I was rattling off Yugen's band members, and I mentioned one of them as having previously worked with that band I just mentioned above, five U's or five W's, uh, except that I said it wrong back then. <laughs> the five W's, I think, is not what I said then. I think I said five U's, but we don't know what's right and wrong. So, yeah. yeah no. I'll, I'll let it slide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're forgiven. <laughs> Point is, uh, I believe a lot of soil bands often played in rock and opposition festivals back in the 70s. So oh, that's cool. the connection. Awesome. And certainly they were a rock band, a rock genre in opposition to the norm. Sure. So if, if that's... They'd be alternative to the norm, if you would. What, whatever. <laughs> I digress. Corima is originally from El Paso, Texas. So none of the places I listed above. They started as a four-piece ensemble in 2005, composed of drummer Sergio Ravello and bassist Juan Tarin, and two guitarists, Eric Martinez and Jamie Silva. Initially influenced by bands like King Crimson and ELP, that's Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, their sound gradually evolved when their new synth and keys player joined, that would be Francisco Casanova, which is an awesome band name, and both guitarists left the band, which is interesting that they left on that. So once the guitarist left the band, that's when this finally took off. Uh, it went to say that they discovered Zoil and Rock and Opposition, and from there, Karima's vision and musicality transformed drastically into what it is now. Uh, so just a little more on the band members here. In 2007, Karima released their first album in El Paso, Texas, and then they toured the East Coast, where they played with highly influential bands such as Child Abuse, The Red Mask, The Great Tyrant, Alwechatistas, and Zs. Zs. <laughs> It's interesting this that was it, a real, real tough one for you, huh? It's a little challenging, and normally well, I don't have so much of a problem with pronunciation. You, you got remember, we're we're starting from the idea that a uh, band came up with a language, yeah, to start with. So anybody that is going to be working with this area may okay. have leanings towards coming up with interesting pronunciations and words interesting to describe words themselves. in general. Yeah. I just like the the um, progression there. The great tyrant Alacatistas and Z's. Yeah. It reminds me of a Rowan Atkinson bit, actually, where he is the uh, the schoolmaster, and he recites. He actually goes through alphabetically every single member of. He's like all these long names: uh, Elmsley Beast Major, Elmsley Beast Minor, and Zob. Special <laughs> 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 name. Anywho, uh, briefly after the tour, Sergio and Francisco moved to Los Angeles, where Andrea Calderon on violin and vocals, so that's our violinist here, uh, Ryan Kamiyamazaki on bass, and Patrick Shiro Shiroishi on saxophone, 
All of them join Koruma. Uh, the current lineup typically plays with close friends and colleagues, Upsilon Akrix, and on one occasion were given the opportunity to open a concert for Yoshida Tatsuya at The Smell in Los Angeles. In 2013, Koruma toured the West Coast and also played Prague Day Festival in North Carolina. Uh, in 2014, Koruma played the Sea Prague Festival in Seattle, Washington, as well as Festival Alternativo in Querétaro, Mexico. So they released their second album, Quetzalcoatl, through the Great Soloil Zoil, which is actually the name for the label, and then they released their latest work, Amaterasu, via the same label on November 2nd of last year. So there's your resume. Uh, let's talk image, because barring everything else, I think the thing that I find most alluring about this band, outside of the music and the genre, is the eclectic blend of cultural elements here. You've got an American band taking after a French prog rock tradition with, I assume, American, Latin American, and Japanese American members, uh, maybe one of their first generation or not, I don't know, but would they have an artistic focus on Japanese and Mesoamerican themes? So is this pot melting or what? Uh, let me explain. The bio I just read is reiterated in Spanish right below. I'm surprised it's not in Japanese as well, because that would just create this nice cool trifecta Rosetta Stone effect, and I think that would be really cool. <laughs> but furthermore, their previous album, Quetzalcoatl, really brought out those Mesoamerican themes. Quetzalcoatl is, of course, the feathered serpent deity, the Aztec god of wind and learning. And that brings us to the new album, Amaterasu, who, which represents a pronounced culture shift to the Japanese instead of the Mesoamerican, uh, specifically to the Shinto Sun goddess Amaterasu. Uh, much like last week, this is also an interesting album in terms of track divisions. Rather than two large tracks, as in last week's case, this album has two large concept pieces. Sukutomi, which I believe is the moon god, and the self-titled Amaterasu. But these concept pieces in turn have their multiple movements, and those movements are coextensive with the album tracks. So tracks 1 to 3 are Sukutomi 1, 2, and 3, and tracks 4 through 9 are Amaterasu 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. So that's a fair warning for us to keep our track numbers and movement numbers in check as we go through this album. Um, and that takes us to the end, at long last, of my spiel on both Zoil and the origins of Karima, and now we can move on to the album artwork. Yes, which I thought was really interesting for me because I pulled a lot from it, um, from, from different walks of my nerdiness, essentially. Imagery alone feels very feudal Japan, samurais and sorcerers, you know, has this, re it's really colorful, has a wolf head, has um, Japanese writing, mm -hmm. and, but also because of the giant wolf head with the red around it in the center, that reminds me of a game for... Uh, the PlayStation 2, I think it first came out on, called Okami, where you played as a wolf spirit, and all of the animation was cel-shaded, stylized Japanese animation. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if the wolf spirit makes its way into that mythology or not. I have right. no idea. But uh, obviously, it's against the, the background here is the, uh, the, the flag of the rising sun. Yeah. So that is the most immediately recognizable thing. And then everything else, it just looks like, yeah, a, a, a sort of a typical painting from that era. It's yeah. 1600-ish. Like well, certain aspects like the flower work is reminiscent of lotuses, which is a very important flower as far as Japanese culture is concerned. Uh, to have other aspects of it, it seems to also be drawing from Western. Uh, specifically, in the upper left corner, you have the almost like a Virgin Mary kind of a pose going right. on right there. That's another little aspect. So it's showing potentially outside influences because while well, you have red and blue lotuses, while historically they're white or when being a negative element, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while, uh, black, having them more colorful than normal seems to be another thing. Also, the backdrop, the actual 
intricacies of the grayscale right. is another thing that departs from a lot of the more generically known uh, Japanese art where they tended to have very simplistic backdrops to allow certain elements like the focus of what the artwork is going to be to stand forward. Well, I, th I think you win uh, this round. <laughs> I noticed that there's a three in the lower right-hand corner, which I think is because of their third album. Wow. Okay, All sure. Right. Good job, Sure, Steve. he gets the share on this yeah, one. Yeah, we'll give him a gold star on that one. All right. <laughs> hey, I did all that other research, all right? <laughs> John I, I, can take it on the art. I, I could be completely talking out of my butt, but... I think I'm. I think I might be no, right you're on something. No, you're good. You're good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds legit. You're good. All right. Track it's... one. Track one. <laughs> Sukutomi, and of course, this is just Sukutomi one. There's only the first movement of a three movement piece. The rest of the album is a considerably longer concept work, and that is the um, self-titled Amaterasu. So. Uh, a quick little thing on this. This is another case of the Lydian scale making its appearance right at the beginning. The dreamy mode that I felt came to define much of Envisage Conundrum by Godsticks, amongst many other things, is what I felt made this the beginning of this track very unique to me. Well, here we find that scale under slightly different lighting, and that is in an electric keyboard tone, sort of warm, shine-like, a little oscillation to it. it it's, its tone is actually one of the lesser weird things about this album, frankly, because the tone itself is, is ubiquitous. You can find it on any Casio Privia. On mine, it's under Electric Piano 2. It's in the presets, actually. It comes across kind of like a vibraphone, a little. Yeah, and I think we're making the distinction here of keyboard or electric piano or electric keyboard versus typically just throwing out the word synth. Yeah. Mostly just to kind of give a different air or tone. I mean, technically, they're we, kind of ubiquitous, we but We say it's synth not... in... in instances where the There's keyboard a... effect is constantly changing, yeah. either in the same piece or from piece to piece on the album. But this is pretty much the constant that they stick with. There are yeah. a couple of other things only. And it does. It really does sound like chimes in the wind. And I think that that air of like, you know, uh, fluidity and spirituality and the kind of thing that you would imagine with chimes is a strong way to start this considering the content we're talking about based on the title and the explanation you gave before. Well, that's because it's a basic motif of overlapping tones here. It's the one, three, two, sharp four. So there's your tritone, that, that sense of mystery and perturbment starting to edge its way in here. And then it's also exaggerated by the time signature in which it's playing, which is a pretty quick five, eight. So there are two beats actually at the end there, the fourth and the fifth beat to actually sit with that tritone. And then 10 seconds in, it sounds like another voice kind of enters in the lower register in the keyboard. It sort of bulks it up a little bit. But I pretty quickly forgot about that aspect and actually listened to the voices that emerged from this piece. That's 20 seconds in. <laughs> that was a major focus for me. It wasn't until the acoustic piano, the actual piano, shows up to start complementing that keyboard that I really started focusing in on the rhythm section again because those voices were capturing. Yeah, it's it's a it's a defining layer of the album, although it's not ever present. It's it's something that when you no when it's there though, you notice it, and it's usually a little bit off-putting. In this case, it's it's two vocalists. It could be more, but I think it, actually it's just two vocalists. One is male, one is female, and they come in together on the D flat. So by this point, I was sure we were in Lydian because uh, D flat has been established as one, as home, which puts everything else I just said in perspective, and also because they too start off by ending their first phrase on that sharp four to really emphasize the mode. Uh, instead of just like kind of going upstairs like the keyboard was, the vocals actually descend one, seven, five, 
sharp four. It's almost quizzical the way they're singing. And then the next phrase feels considerably more freeform. They're not lockstep with each other in their respective registers. There's a lot more, uh, there's a lot of beautiful counterpoint going on here. No lyrics, of course. It's just a haze, a, a smokescreen of, of who am I and what land is this sort of connecting me to the visuals on the, on the album cover. And then they complete the phrase on a peaceful major two chord. And that gives the keyboard a chance to really ring free in this interlude, this sort of alteration between three measures of 5-8 and another of 8-8, eight, eight, sort of the way I heard it. And then that kind of enters us in at 50 seconds to sort of an A prime. Yeah, all of that, plus the piano, the actual not electric keyboard. Yeah, acoustic piano, piano yeah. I called, yes. Um, when that comes in after what um, Steve was describing, I think adds this interesting dissonance to a track like this that we typically don't get to hear because usually if there's synth, there's no regular piano. If there's regular piano, there's no synth. We don't usually get a mix of the two. I actually don't want to use the word dissonance yet because I felt like they were way too complementary of one another to really start pushing each other apart or feeling like they're uh, they're against one another. There were too much too much unison going on, All right. especially because the the parts that were a little bit more on the dissident side that which it does show up. I feel like the vocals did a lot to keep that cohesion together yeah. because of the way they were being drawn out on top of everything else. It had a blanketing effect on the rhythm section, on the two aspects of the rhythm section and kept them from becoming uh, unwieldy, I well, guess. The thing about the piano is it almost came across to me like a toy piano. Only because it sounds so bright next to the keyboard, it kind of gets drowned out a little bit. You hear a little more percussiveness. That's all the piano really adds. But what's interesting about this intro, because all of this seems to be all intro material here, we don't really get our big transition until 2 minutes and 28 seconds. That's actually like our section A. But I wanted to say a, a couple more things about this intro, because this is, this is the, your introduction to the group, if this is the first album you're listening to by the group. And it's pretty interesting, because they structure this almost as if it were a piece in its own right. There's like this A, B, A within it. And so after a little bit of a gap as we were going from that A to the B, uh, the piano moves quite suddenly here to C Lydian, or rather dominant, because I think that flat seven is thrown in here. So I have to say, this was kind of strange, because that was that was a weird twist, but as stark as it was, it made for kind of a weird story being told. And I like weird stories, and in the, in the process, I'm intrigued by the modal nature of this. It actually kind of reminded me of the E.T. soundtrack. But then, as we swing back to the A double prime, before we finally go into the transition, something about the piano here, uh, in this transition, just like eerily rocks back and forth on two notes and then that motif carries over to the return home it just it, it feels like a page taken out of fur lease you know that that little two note motif that begins the fur lease da, 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 da. it wasn't just the big motif in that piece beethoven actually used it to transition from his section b back into a as well which is exactly what this is doing which is why it reminded me of it and so there's this, this moment where you th almost think those two notes are going to go on forever but then the d flat really settles it back back in very nicely it was a very well done transition and that's all before the big transition that was one of my favorite parts of this piece it that pivot back and forth between the two and the way the elongate between their strikes uh kind of lied to me though i thought i was going into a lullaby-esque kind of a piece i thought we were going to go down into dreamland instead the kind of carnival or carnival if you want to be <laughs> like specifically like a Mardi Gras kind of celebration erupts from what this transition does. Yeah, that was surprising because what it happens here, they, they model it after the same thing. The piano just speeds up and intensifies on this two note thing and then boom, whole new material, whole new palette, drums still with keyboard, 
saxophones too. Yeah, the, the festive nature of this, I mean, it reminded me in moments of klezmer music, of folk music. Like, it, it had shades of a bunch of different things, and yet nothing specifically at the same time, I think. But the exuberance is definitely there and undeniable. Yeah. The interplay between the sax and the violin of this section was what really became an intriguing part because yeah. the, the playoff of one another allowed them to change the way their notes sounded. And just being able to go along with the flows, when one would stand out above the other, when one really did take center stage, especially when the sax really goes full, you know, ham hog fun on everything, was was, um, sort of like an eye-opening experience in something that was already fairly eye-opening. Yeah, and for me, it wasn't, it was not like as stark as you'd expect from the fact that so many of the instruments were kind of swapped out, or not swapped out, actually, just a lot of things added, and the overall feel is suddenly so much different. But it's not as stark to me, mainly because, well, first of all, we kind of previewed this this chord here. This is also in that C Lydian thing, so it's really where our previous uh, little B phrase was at. And also, time signature-wise, it's just, it's hard to ignore the fact that this is exuberant. It's like measures of 3858386868, and that's the, the, the... loop that it goes in for a while, but it's just, these are crazy time signatures that also utilize classical melody expansion, but this is more in the prog fashion, so that's just a fusion of too many things that I like. There was also uh, a bit of a settling nature in what was going on. As these themes start running their courses, you notice that there's certain patterns emerging from it, and that Mm -hmm. was another piece that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. The saxophone might do something, and then the violin is going to do the same thing, or something similar enough in maybe a slightly different key that you can actually hear a call and response developing between those two. Not only that, but what the drums are doing and what the bass is doing does a lot to settle down any of the oddball effects, so... You sort of are in this chaos, but the chaos is actually quite settled, quite smooth. It doesn't feel super chaotic, and even gets a little less chaotic as we get into about a minute of it. Around 3.39, the synth, the sax, and the bass kind of start to amalgamate together in what I call a Doors-esque kind of fashion, because it's just how crisp the keyboard is at this point, plus the mixture of those two other instruments rings out of classic rock and just really kind of envelops you at that point. And it's actually two moments right there that I really, really love, because it's just, it all comes to a head at this E minor 7th and then a wild saxophone trill which is just this beautiful piece of texture just thrown in here. I lost myself at this point and yet this is still kind of the intro to the big jam. I think it's 3 minutes and 45 seconds that you get the main theme. Mm-hmm. So like the part you're referring to, yeah, that's like 3.36, then this is 3.45. This is like the main theme. The saxophone has just a wildly fun funk motif of its own and this gets progressively more avant-garde as we go further into this. But I I didn't have time to analyze this part in such detail because after you're done, you know, dancing it out to that main theme, then it does go a little bit darker. But then there was a chord that burst out not too far into this, like four minutes and six seconds on the organ. This moment here was so dense, it was like something straight out of Stravinsky's work, almost like like the the dark end of Rite of Spring. It was really cool. And this is the most aggressive the track has gotten to up until this point. You know, these strikes, they're just they kind of shift the track as a whole. And then as we approach the 4 minute and 44 second mark, it gets even darker. And it's all based on this kind of stylized piano work that you're talking about. Although we inter- interchange it with the main theme. Right. So it's like it fun, still kind dark, of comes dark, back. Yeah. yeah, it kind of flip-flops a little. 
I don't feel darkness. That's the one thing I'm, I'm actually starting to go away from you two on, is that I feel a thickening of it. Maybe the sound feels like it's getting denser, but I don't feel like it's taking any sort of uh, turn to a darker theme. I still feel a lot of the bright and airiness of the initial idea of this section that... Well- that is, it's pervasive. Well, it's, they're both it's not really there, though. Like, it's not just darker. It's just getting darker. The brightness is still there in the mix. But like, because see, of how chaotic it is, I'm a, hearing hints of the other stuff It's as more well. of a surrealist effect, which yeah. is the kind of thing that, you know, you could either just take that at face value or you... You pull, you draw things from it and say, because this is sitting in an uncanny valley, then I feel darker themes. It's not the way it should be, in a way. And yeah, I, like, I like that it's going down It's perception. Road. It's your perception of it, more so than what it is. Then I would actually label it more as oddities, as opposed to darkening. <laughs> well, that dense chord was definitely an oddity. And you have more oddities as we go on. I mean, five minutes and five seconds, this was something that was quite a bit more exotic. This is what I'll just call the, the, the C theme, I guess for the piece. I don't know. Stuff I've kind of lost track I'm a little point. bit lost at this point. I'd have to sit with this for a while longer to really make proper sense of this, but this was definitely the closing section, and it was mm-hmm. it was different in its own right because it kind of goes back to that, it goes back to sort of like an Arabian theme, you know? It was the saxophone and the violin together, which is not a pair that I hear very frequently, yeah. and here they're just shining both together in this beautiful dual melody, and it sits perfectly on this line between be- jazz, classical, and also a little bit in Arabian uh, music tradition. It also feels like the kind of thing that Leonard Bernstein would borrow as he was constantly like fusing the classical side of things with like the jazz big band and swing together. Sure. But, and there were times even further in this where I actually heard one thing that I've been talking about for ages in almost extraneous reference on this show and that I never have actually found a, a true comparison to, and that is that 1910s futurism movement. I just mentioned it like a couple weeks ago, and I actually heard it in this, this musical form. And you're not talking about the drums, though. That, that, that's, that's, they're great. They're just, they weren't my focus at the moment. Oh, but we're introduced to this section with just the drums. And just the that drums coming in was a, a, another just great shift in this piece where we're going from something that, yeah, had one theme. Okay, it was kind of slow, a little bit on the sultry side. Second theme, even when it revisits that A, still has a lot of energy to it, still has a lot of happiness to it. This, the drums, almost from the get-go, just started screaming sultry. Started screaming almost sex at me. And it was great. <laughs> See, not, it, it I didn't was, get that I anywhere. Get, I got it. The rapidity of it and the kind of like downward nature of it just, it felt like mingled heartbeats to me. See, I guess is the only way I could phrase and it. And I didn't get that. I think the it felt more frantic than sexual to yeah. me. I got a sense of uh, hints of urgency, though we don't get that to much later in the album, but there were hints of it here. I think this track as a whole has hints of things yet to come um, as we go through. But yeah, I didn't really feel that from the percussion. I definitely felt the intensity of it, but I just didn't get a sexuality from it. I think it actually was more firmly implanted in mind was at the end of a lot of the phrases of the Saxon string combination, there was uh, a lot of breaths done. And these breaths allowed the drums to really mingle with that that those keys that the sax and the violin were producing, which I, I can't see it anything but a little bit on the sexual nature. The combination of the two just kind of blanketed it together. 
For me, I guess because I was so focused on the melody here, I was edging more on maybe the romantic side than anything else. Just the exotic romantic nature of the better. scale, I was there, but not exotic in a sexual way. And I wasn't in either place. Like I said, I think there was an intensity to it and a rush almost, but I didn't get anything as emotional or as physical as I feel, sex. Or I feel in many ways, even when I use the word romantic, I feel like I'm borrowing more from like the romantic era. Right, romantic era. And not era. necessarily that it feels like it's, you know, doling Lovely. romance yeah. on me. It's it's but there's something very exotic about the place and it's a new place. Yeah. Or something that I've only recognized in some pieces from that era, which I never get the chance to bring it up bring up in any other capacity. Like I think I would say more there's more intrigue here than flat out um, uh, attraction for yeah. me. And not necessarily different, but can branch to different things. Well, it, it's not that the entire piece really, like, wraps up neatly. It's not like we return no. to A or anything. Like, they they kind of... This whole entire piece has a very singular direction to it. It mm -hmm. doesn't really wind back on itself at a certain point. It just pushes forward, forward, and forward. And that made this a very, very alluring start to the album. In fact, I believe this this track was a track they released or they had shared like on their Facebook page or something like that to the public well before the album was out, mm. just to give the little taste of the album. And it set a really, really high bar. And yet it's not even the completion of Sukutomi. We have two more Sukutomis, and the next is Sukutomi 2, which conveniently for the moment is track two. And this is a, this is a long Sukutomi at 10 minutes and 36 seconds. Yeah, and, and the start here of the track kind of builds out of where we ended before but there we do get a little bit of a break here but essentially it starts with what feels like a kind of slow jazzy start that I think could be extracted from what we were hearing before but isn't necessarily super closely related I actually thought of it more as like an emergence especially when the sack steps in on top of what the uh, the long rumble and smooth bass was doing that was one of the coolest blends I've really heard mm -hmm. in a very long time because the sax was one of those like ever present but not quite there instruments until mm -hmm. it was by itself. Yeah. The way it emerges out of the bass was just great. Just it, phenomenal. Yeah. And it out really of the, atmo the atmospheric stuff and the drums too on the ride was just really, really beautiful. It made this so much smoother and slower. And really, this is a long build. I mean, the, the saxophone... Yeah, it's a slow burn here at the beginning of yeah. this piece. Um, all you have is just the, the electronic keyboard in the background and then the drums also in the background. But it's... A, exceedingly beautiful in the beginning. This, I actually am going to say, this was probably more romantic to me for yeah. the moment. Uh, but it felt like it was maybe missing a little bit of framework and and set up. Like, we're just kind of thrown into this jam. Because it's not, I shouldn't say melody. Of course it's melody, but it's kind of like a prolonged solo. The melody itself is pretty freeform and less memorable on its own, which I think was maybe one of my only problems with this. Yeah. Except for the only, the, except for the overall feeling it conveys. That was, that left its mark on me. But that's no small potatoes. I was I was in a daze listening to this, and it was, uh, it was just an experience to behold. It's just, you can't pinpoint singular, they don't stick with you like some of the previous themes did in track one yeah i mean but it's definitely building to something more and i think the freeform nature of this allows it to kind of expand in a very different way than the previous piece expanded yeah and the way the sax actually moves through 
uh, I guess, two different ideas to my ears, where it does start off as uh, harkening back to that kind of Arabia feel from the previous yeah. piece, where it starts off, it feels like a flute almost. Like, it's in that sort of register. We should have mentioned anyway, it's a pretty clean blend between these two movements. I mean, there's not really a break. So, yeah, yeah you're, you're in the it's same, still building it. In the same feeling. But as the sax... Uh, shifts from something that really does feel flute-like and drawn out into more of a stop-and-go jazz, I love the way the keyboard allows this to happen because the keyboard comes in and starts breaking up these saxophone notes to really start letting it scat on top of everything else. This really starts around a minute and 35 seconds in and progressively the, the saxophone gets more and more experimental because it's not slow and crooning anymore. It's a jittery saxophone. It's torn between the soft romantic stuff and then these like crazy asides. It's in full blown solo territory and it's quite the jam here. A true jam in the deeper sense because the keyboard and the drums start playing around really just as much as it is. Uh, but it gets more and more intense until by about two minutes and 50 seconds, everything just kind of falls into this these, this cool figuration and more solidity in the background so the sax can do its thing. And it was just so strange to hear a, a jam in the beginning of a piece. Usually it's the kind of thing that a piece would build to, but instead here it's all kind of thrust in the front. Now at 3 minutes and 10 seconds, here's where we get the theme. The theme makes yeah. its appearance, a rhythmic motif that every instrument is in on, and it, the rhythm of it really kind of reflects the last piece. It's roughly this 4-4, four, 5-4, four, 4-4 uh, four, four, four time signature pattern. Uh, it's a pretty good climax, but then the piece starts unwinding a little bit for me as it goes through its chord motions. And this is where we start to get a sense of the dissonance I mentioned earlier. Yeah, like, this is, this, I'll it, definitely use that word but, now. But I think me mentioning it earlier is kind of hinting at it, but although it, it, you know, it was very, you had to look for it. Here, it's very obvious. Here we're getting some interesting things that seem to conflict with each other. But, and here's where the but shows up, I don't think it's just pure dissidence because there's a lot of harkening back to this specific piece. It actually, the the chaos that this real theme, I guess, does is a lot like what the saxophone was doing and even the drums and the bass was doing in this, in the first three minute introductory of this piece. So it's not like it's a breaking bounds or doing something that's truly chaotic, it was already hinting at this, so we were prepared for this kind of de-evolution of the piece itself. Yeah, nothing felt unnatural. It's just a strange arc of a story. Um, Mainly because also the immediately following that theme, you know, the unwinding that I started to get into, it's just, there's some fascinating bits of transitional material here. It's just that in this instance, for, for for these few bars, actually probably more than a few, it felt a little bit directionless, and it, you kind of have to complete the piece, then re-listen to the piece and with a broad view before it all kind of starts to make sense. But in the first listen, I was not exactly sure where it was going. But I, I do have to say, like, just forgetting Soil, forgetting the band, and they're already I've already established them as ma- amazing composers based on what I said in track one, this is just a common prog problem. Prog often goes through these, like, crazy transitional sides, not always sure where you're going to end up because it's part of the process of prog. And that's what makes it really kind of fascinating 
fascinating in the end. But several bars of this, several bars of that, and the only thing that you notice at the end of it starts to really bind it together is that rhythmic pattern. That's what, what kind of keeps it together until the section finally breaks free into something I really liked. Yeah, the, the next section that follows, we really get a focus on the violin and the keyboard, but the way they play in tandem with each other, it actually started to sound like a separate instrument to me, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. It rung out like almost seemingly like bagpipes because of the way the notes hung, as if you were putting your foot down on an actual piano's pedal. Yeah. And it, it just made this interesting sound. It's one of those things where when you're listening to something, you know, whether it's a voice or anything else, it starts to sound some, like something else. Like we talked about synth sounding like vocals because of how it kind of rings out. Right. That's how what happened here with me. And I thought that was really fascinating because I can't pinpoint a time I've heard that before. I, and I didn't pick up on the bagpipe thing, but it was really, really cool to my ears. First of all, just established, it was, yeah, four minutes, 26 seconds that this happens with just everything strips down. That's what was so uh, so sudden about it. Everything is gone all of a sudden and it just strips down to a pure keyboard and violin. Actually, I think two violins though I believe there's only one violinist so it may just be another track that they overlaid but it's split in stereo and that's what made the two instruments, the keyboard and the violin, sound very, very uh, perfectly paired. It almost sounded like a ditty that one of them was playing and the other one was playing and it just so happened to be the exact same ditty at that one inspirational point. It was an amazing effect. These upward strokes and amidst the stereo action, it was just... And it was even more powerful when the saxophone decided to take it over (laughs) and basically reinvent what it was going on because there's a lot of throwback. There's a lot of homage to the first idea, but this is sort of like, if we're in a B section or something like that, this would be a B prime almost well this is a hard no this is a pretty hard transition at four minutes and 58 seconds this but, is pure funk but you're right it goes back to the early it, the earlier it's, part it's so reminiscent of what was going on it's so closely knit yet because the framework has changed dramatically like really dramatically we're in a completely different area of this piece we're, we're in a different continent almost we're more, so a little it's, more funk-rooted American, you know? Yeah, the things like the Arabia are basically gone. The jazz is only there because of its connection, connection to, to funk. funk inherently, yeah. Yeah. So having a, a melody that shows up and feels like I already heard this melody in a completely different genre was pretty eye-opening for the piece well, itself. Let me talk about this section a little bit, because I really, really liked this. The bass is what kicks it off. It's crazy bass captivating lick and then the keyboard creeps back in and the drums just mile a minute on the hi-hat over and over again but it's really the entrance of the violin's main melody here that had me most intrigued i think it's e flat minor but the violin is sitting more in dorian so you get this incredibly peaceful motion on that that natural six and then they they go on and jam again this whole section actually really has two phrases it's again that a and b thing the a phrase is this peaceful romantic violin section and then the b phrase is this jam fiddle thing. And I was actually a little bit disappointed they didn't develop the A because that section, I felt, had a lot of a lot of potential, perhaps more potential than the B did. But instead, from here, it kind of develops into a keyboard solo. Felt like it was right out of the career of Ray Manzarek, which is absolutely great. I only wish, because this sort of entered into another long solo, another long jam, I wish I was more of a fan of jams on album projects. Otherwise, I'd have a larger threshold for this. This band must be great live. Absolutely great. But on albums, it started to get a little more structured like a stream of consciousness. Which is cool. It's it's just probably the best jam we've witnessed, I think, on an album where I'm pretty sure it's all 
stream of consciousness. The keyboard felt here a little bit long-winded. That was my big issue. Yeah. Because I mean, it was... It's a 10-minute track. So yeah. I mean, yeah, I think towards the tail end, it just felt long-winded in general. I mean, I felt the whole outro, once we got into the jammiest of jam parts, I just felt like it just dragged a little bit. But see, you must was, accept that if you're listening live, you know, the time goes by in a flash. Sure, and then absolutely, but we're not listening live. You're not listening live, it's fine. It wasn't just the fact that the keyboard was a little bit long. It was just the strings that stepped up to replace the keyboard felt like they weren't doing anything all too different or expansive on what the keyboard did. And then when the strings and the keyboard come in in unison, they kind of do the same thing again. So it felt like it is actually the first time I can say that someone doing prog-oriented things is spending too much time on a theme. Well, As opposed to uh, going a little bit too quickly. Too because much. it was pretty, but honestly, I was enjoying the really rapid changes that were occurring earlier a lot more than this kind of breather of a section. Kind of a, a, you a mean cool down of a section. The rapid changes that I described, I was feeling a little bit lost in. Like those yeah, chord that chords. I was enjoying that's a little right, bit that's more interesting. than this. I enjoy them intellectually. <laughs> I guess that's the idea. But this section here... Um, I don't know. I I overall am still pretty satisfied with it. But the the one thing you did leave out was the saxophone melody. I think was the thing that actually preceded the violin rejoining it. So the saxophone melody is actually what is rem- more reminiscent of the A phrase of the B section and also of the intro. And then he jams it out with the violin. So overall, I don't know. I I guess. I was satisfied with it, but it was a little bit split for me. Wild, but enjoyable. It just wasn't exactly a a period at the end of the sentence when they finally come to the end of this jam. It's more like an ellipsis or a series of swear words interrupted by, you know, an occasional coherent thought. But well, that's, that's the chaos they want to leave you on. They're not leaving us on this. That's that's the one thing, because we do go straight into the next piece. And it, the next piece is the culmination of of this theme of Tsukutomi. So it's it's not like we, we need a period quite yet at well, this point. But at the same time, true. just to keep Matt from being able to talk yet, I <laughs> I was also satisfied. I guess satisfaction is the best way to put this piece, because... It wasn't quite the joy I was feeling in parts in the first piece. Here, there was a lot of stimulating conversation, I guess. That's a good way to put it. And the conversation, though, never quite made me happy and laughing and anything like that, or deeply depressed, or any really emotional response. It was just a nice Rubik's Cube of a problem to really stare at and just enjoy the aspects of problem-solving going on. Um, I can't argue with any of that. I yeah. think there's a lot that is intellectually fascinating about this track, um, and in doses they do to me what track one was doing to me in droves. Yeah, and I mean, even when we move on to track three, which is Tsukutomi 3, um, we get an intriguing start, because this is probably the most aggressive start at this point, and even more dissonant than the previous track. Here, there is definitely like a franticness, to the tones here, but almost in like, here's the pure happiness, almost a raw giddiness to the fra- franticness. Well, well, that's where it goes. But let's start out with the with the frank- franticness um, before I actually felt raw giddiness. Sure. So that, in the very beginning here, there was almost no break. Remember, it just yeah. goes cleanly from, the, from right the, into the it. end of the last track into this. And so, it, of course, the end of the last track was frantic. So this starts off frantic. And I, at first, that was a bit of a disappointment because I know it says that it's part of the same 
track set or series, but at this point I was a little lost because I wasn't understanding the track divisions on this album. Like, I, the way I described the ending of the yeah. last track, it's not like I felt like, why should it have ended there? You might as well have just continued this. I mean, this track is only 2 minutes and 32 seconds long, so yeah. why not have just made that 10-minute track a 12-minute track? It's not like that's a crazy idea, especially as far as our experience is concerned. Well, that's because what this piece does is, uh, I guess, not wildly new. A lot of what's going on here as we progress along the piece, I feel like it's actually just throwbacks to the previous two pieces. This feels more like a summation of what we just experienced as opposed to a closing of a story. Well, that's where I want to interrupt because I think that... uh the beginning that was probably true i don't i don't agree that the where the track leads us has has been done before in this album i do think it's some new material like for instance after we get past the intro it goes into a section that really was giddy it it, it started yeah. to release almost like a, a this was the theme to a pesky group of elves or something very strange there was the sense of raw energy to it for sure m- more guitar dominated i think that was one of the differences mm-hmm. i think there was a guitar in here and i'm not really keen to point out guitar in this album i could be mistaken maybe there was no guitars i'm not sure but this felt a little more heavier on that in that end in that that uh, texture register but the saxophone is just as important here i mean and this has its a and b phrase structure too you have one statement which is the giddy part and then b is just a little bit more a little bit more laid back not really laid back but it's keyboard bass and sax and so that's just a response to a and then it goes back and forth and by the way i was a lot more impressed with the bass work in b than in a oh i would definitely agree to that and it felt like it was sort of the eye of the storm effect going on with that bass. Uh, it was grounding you. It was keeping the chaos quite, uh, quite out of arm's reach, so that you can experience the tornado around you of what right. was going on. So it was an interesting effect on whatever I was listening to, but I didn't feel like it was really leading me anywhere, and that was where the issue was showing. That kind of goes back to what I had said in the last track. I mean, I yeah. guess it's true that each section didn't feel markedly different from the previous. I'll, I'll backtrack and maybe agree with you on that a little bit until something finally does break it up and that's a minute and 45 seconds in where we get sort of a saxophone solo joined by the violin again in beautiful harmony and uh, this I'll admit made for a really perfect retransition to the closing section which borrows both from A and B. So compositionally I was actually I ended up being more on board with the overall arc of this piece, because it's easy to do in 2 minutes and 32 seconds than the overall arc of the 10-minute monster. Yeah, and I would say that the the way the track kind of denigrates just a little bit right before the sax solo, I think gives the sax solo its uh, emphasis that it needs to then focus on as we get a brand new build-up towards the end. That's reminiscent of the earlier yeah. song. Almost gives it the gravitas it needs yeah. to really be the main mm-hmm. character here. But I think I'm going to go back to my primary issue with this track, which is the lack of conclusion going on. I don't feel like this really puts a period on Tsukutomi. And I don't really think it expands too dramatically on Tsukutomi. So I'm left wanting more by the end of it, as opposed to the fact that we're going into a completely different character after this piece. I feel like, while it's, okay, it's not his album, it's not called Tsukutomi. 
All right. Right. It is a different individual. It's about Amaterasu, and which is who we're gonna get next. And but it's, here, it's time we 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 use this little intermission here, this little breather between these two concept pieces, because that's the end of Tsukutomi. Um, to I guess mention a little more on that album theme. If there is one, we don't know a lot about it. All we know is what I mentioned at the top of the show, and that is that Amaterasu was most definitely the Shinto sun goddess, and that there's a bit of a discrepancy really with Tsukutomi because. I don't know what Tsukutomi is. I just know that Tsukuyomi is the moon god, and that seems like more than a coincidence. I would assume. And I'm going to assume here only because we have uh, no outside information to correct yeah, us. Yeah, we don't speak Japanese, so we don't know the connection if, if there is one. So we're going to assume Tsukutomi is the moon god. Uh, yeah. In this case, anyway. Yes, Amaterasu's brother in the mythology that we're working with here. Right. But... This is where things start getting muddied, because when you do at least a cursory glance of the mythology itself, Tsukutomi, because that's what I'm going to pronounce it as, Tsukutomi was, or at least had themes of violence more associated with him, as well as sort of a chaotic nature, and if you connect the moon to him, I mean, the moon itself is briefer in our sky. It's also more prone to change. So, okay, him being one-third, numerically, of the album would make sense when comparing moon to sun. Right. But I'm not really seeing a lot of violence going on because Sukutomi grew jealous of his sister, according to the religion, and killed someone well, over this. So, like, this is, this is a thing that he was... Uh, reportedly done. You don't see violence yet, though. And that's the thing. Because here's... I mean, Amaterasu this really changes the texture of this album, and I was very surprised to get a piece like track four, the first movement of Amaterasu. But essentially, Suku Yomi, again, as the... It's actually written, uh, did something bad. Killed someone, right? And as a result... Amaterasu was not pleased, and that is the reason why the sun and the moon are separate today, because it was a a case of banishment, essentially. And you can imagine there was a lot of anger surrounding this deed. Uh, They seemed to be pretty tight beforehand, and I imagine that's why track four, to me, makes perfect sense that it would basically start off as probably the angriest track on this album. Right up front, it's an avant-garde solo piano piece. That is... Not a, a, a piece of texture I expected. It's not It's not yeah. crazy for our experience. We've heard a couple things like this before. Uh, the last time we heard something sort of like this was in Jugend, um, in terms of there being a sort of German expressionist piece thrown at the end, which actually had vocals, piano and vocals. And this is similar to that in that it is pretty expressionist, though not exactly with the same approachability, ironically, as we found in that particular song from Yugen. Mm-hmm. Uh, this stuff is pretty cool and all. Again, intellectually, I, I, as a piano player, I like just different ways of using the piano. Just heavy pounding on the piano to start with, and also rhythmically, the right hand is harshly against the, the rhythm of the left hand, both rhythmically and conceptually. I, it's only tonally that I part of me wishes this had been just a little bit more tonally organized, because I, I couldn't identify it. I didn't really sit to like analyze this piece, but it sounds pretty atonal to me. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a sense of feeling kind of scattered and disjointed here, at least for me, in the way the strikes are coming, and because it's it feels more avant-garde than what we had gotten before. But, I mean, that said, the sound is a piano being struck, which is 
physical and natural, whereas a lot of the other disjointed and scattered sounds we've gotten on other prog and electronica records have been synth and, you know, uh, programmed beats and, and stuff that really does feel separate from the human condition. Like what you said in the Chili Gonzalez episode, you long for physical instruments after a while, yeah. and this album is largely pretty physical except for the uh, electric keyboard. I actually found it to be a really nice explanation musically through the piano of what frustration and or distraction would be. Yeah. Like if you're really going to describe frustration, the the idea of just like every once in a while you just got to slam something because you can't get the melody out. And that's what I like about this. It just goes through the different idea of what a melody could be and never quite finishes the sentence. It's almost like there's a stutter going on. Yeah, I, I can tell you I've been in exactly that position at the piano. It's, it's, it's in here, it's in your brain, but it can't hit your lips. And in this case, it's in your brain and it can't quite hit your fingers. And yet it feels like it's trying to edge its way in and that's why yeah. it sounds kind of fascinating here. I mean, in the intro, of course, yeah, it's all just the pounding, but that's only so we can start transforming it as early as 40 seconds in. We get a little bit of something slightly more delicate, barely delicate, but the blur here transforms into a more thin yet punctuated uh, piano work. Just this little, like, prancing around, still mm -hmm. kind of atonally. It actually reminded me a little bit of the work of Alban Berg. Uh, and then we return to the pounding once more. But then yeah. at one minute and 20 seconds, we go from, again, something that was mostly atonal to something kind of tonal, like almost making a move to resolve. It wants to resolve, but even amidst this, I don't know which one is pushing its way in. Is the pounding pushing its way in, or is the uh, melody pushing its way in? Because it just, it, it returns. It can't keep it down. Actually, the pounding itself seems to take over the melody by the end of the piece. It seems to become the melody, except the melody is just slam, 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 slam. Just slight changes in key. Maybe he went up or down a little bit along the scale. Mostly it's the frustration is what the end goal was that we couldn't quite see. We thought we were going to actually be able to experience something and come to a resolution. No, the lack of resolution is a resolution in and of itself. Well, what's interesting about the slamming nature of the music here, the percussive nature of the piano here, is that it almost feels like it's going from distraction to aggression, depending on how you look at it. And then when it gets more melodic, it's almost like it's giving up or like re releasing a little bit. Taking but, a breath to allow something to breathe. I mean, just specks of beauty, hints of beauty, like these two note alterations that again, really want to resolve at two minute 10. Right, but then as we get closer towards the end, I mean, even the slamming, like John said, does feel more melodic. Of course, until we get to the final resolve, because this is one of the few tracks on the album <laughs> that has an end. Quote unquote resolve. Where it literally just slams as loud as possible, end. It's Finn. actually, Starting at two minutes and twenty nine seconds, he—it's not the—that's not the final chord, but that's the final <laughs> bout of what I would call a hellish death spree. Yeah, and that is what really takes us to a final arpeggio, which is the last little bit of beauty that you get in all of this. It's not even really beautiful. It's just again quizzical, like I said earlier. And then after that, the final chord, this resoundingly dense coup de gras, almost. Yeah. Uh, just this final blow, or is it? because there's a little bit going on in the background amidst the lingering resonance of that final chord. Just a little pitter-patter in the background, like the last death throes in a battle zone. Yeah, and it that... doesn't actually end there. We get another 30 seconds or so of resonance and minor, tiny, quiet chords. I, I only have one comparison for this piece, as this kind of carries us over into track five, but I... 
I had to write a 12-tone, uh, based on Schoenberg's 12-tone system, I had to do that back in college, and I wrote a piece called The Demented Circus, which I gotta be honest, sounds a little bit like this. <laughs> I, at the end of it, I, I felt like it was, to go back to a classic line, uh, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. That idea that in destruction there's still beauty, like or vice versa. In in beauty there's destruction, sort of like a creation destruction combination, order and chaos kind of a thing going on there. Because the regimented parts are the melody, and that's the pretty parts. But the pretty parts never quite get to culminate because it's just easier to destroy than there is to create. Hmm. It's it's a great intellectual Rubik's cube. I don't know if I'm ever going to want to listen to this other than to have a nice thought experiment. A few years ago, I would agree with you. Today, I might revisit this. This wasn't, like, enjoyable, per se. I might buy this album. I don't know. (laughs) It was just... It's early yet. It's like a Sudoku book, though. It's something I like to experience in short little snippets, but it's... And in some ways, it also is just a time waster for me. It's something that's there so that I can get through a a boring little thing while keeping my mind engaged. Hmm. And I wouldn't go that far, I don't think, for this. There was definitely curiosities here, and it definitely intrigued me. I'm somewhere between the two of you. I feel like... I mean, I feel like... I'm, I guess I'm closer to Steve, because I would definitely revisit this, but only due to intrigue more so than actual musicality, because I think... There's stuff to pick apart here. The yeah. first three tracks, this track, and as we move on to track five, Amaterasu 2, which is where we get a little more confusing number-wise, yeah. um, I feel like it's like last week, the intrigue is pulling me along more than the actual musicality of the pieces, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. In mm. fact, that's less common for us lately, and so I, I'll go with it. Because when we go into this track... The resonance that carries over from the previous track then leads us into this synth resonance that feels almost alien in nature. It's it's almost lasery. It, it feels it's a radio signal in a lot of ways, especially maybe. because of how metronomic it is, how regulated it is. Yeah. It is just a constant, like a dung. But I cannot do that, that sort of sound. Thing, no, it's, but it, it's but it does. But it, but it does come in. That's better at That's the close. same timing consistently while other stuff starts to come in because while that stark strike essentially happens that attack we also start to get violin which is trying to do something a lot more melodic and beautiful this this was refreshingly creepy honestly yeah. because I, I i do think that in context the last track really served as a nice palate cleanser here and now we're kind of working our way back up into the new story yeah like that was the event and now you have to deal with the aftermath and this is where it gets complex uh the synth First of all, it's just kind of holding down, I think, an F and a C, maybe another F. Uh, I couldn't pick out a third there, or flat or otherwise, so it was just the tone that we get for the moment. No major minor thing, except that we do kind of get that in the violin. At least, there is a flat three, but I think there's a lot of other things. If I had actually transcribed this particular uh, segment, which I may yet do for my own curiosity, I'd probably have a better idea of what scale it's working in. Uh, Because I can hear it now in my head, maybe Phrygian with a natural six, I don't know. But... 
it's, it's again out of that expressionist tradition and felt really, really well blended from the previous track. It's an era of music that I am thoroughly into, and this, although it's certainly creepy, is definitely on the more approachable side. Well, I loved it for the fact that the violin is working within these radio beacons. That was what was uh, very intriguing for me, especially when the radio effect changes pitch and doubles up on what it's doing. Uh, then the violin starts working off of the strikes themselves as opposed to being between the strikes. This combination of the two allows the phrases of the strings to be interpreted differently between the two different settings. Well, when the synth changed uh, pitch, I actually, at that one moment, I was taken to a whole other part of culture, and that was the, the music and filmography of John Carpenter. I actually thought that that was like some beast rearing its head. It was very strange, only when the synth changed chords, because that just felt like something right out of the 80s in that kind of low-budget horror realm. But anyway, that, that was only that for that one moment. In general, I really want to focus on the melody here, the violin melody, because I was captivated by how uh, evasive it was. It was almost a tortured melody, and the the torture is ongoing because after a while, it, it evolves into this climbing sensation, like it's progressively sending out these louder cries for help in the shadow of some impending doom. I don't know. Yeah, the paired together added a uh, uh, theatricality to the track that we hadn't really had as stark as this in previous pieces. Here, for sure, them being almost at odds or there being a sense of fear between the two of them really paints a picture here. I really like the picture I came up with for these two, like, call and response, because that's what it really felt like for me. In this the singular radio sections, it felt like a, a message was actually being beaconed outward, and when the double note comes in with the pitch change, it felt like the information was coming back to us. It felt like two different entities sort of communicating between each other in the electromagnetic stage. Like, that's what it felt like to me. That's what I, I visualized here. Just basically two radio beacons communicating to one another. Yep. So when it starts evolving and the piano steps in on this and really ends the phrases on a, on a solid note and evolves that ever so slightly, we get a little bit more drawn out, the pitch starts changing, and we get, I believe, around 210 to 11 seconds, like a final burst this is like its its last call. The 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 violin, which is the character I see. I, I'm not I'm not on board with your radio thing quite yet. I just it's, it's I just the, think the, the, the synth is is a is a the background element. It, it serves its purpose. It just creates the gentle eerie ambience that is necessary. But the piano is one thing we definitely forgot to talk about. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. But uh, the the character, of course, is the violin. And once it sends out its last cry for help at two minutes eleven seconds, the keyboard just echoes in its wake, and that leads us to almost a spell of silence but then at two minutes and 25 seconds we get a whole new section and that actually contains vocals so this is pretty important because the b section while overall being relatively similar to the a it's just there's more instruments here there's a saxophone bass drums and vocals all of a sudden yeah. it's just that here it, it feels because it feels fuller it does feel like more uh more narrative weight is added as opposed to the overall feel the conveying of fear yeah, I get a much stronger creep factor here because it's fuller. I don't think that it's necessarily any more fearful or creepy than previously. It's just because 
there's more here, there's more to derive and pick from it. I'll tell you this though, uh, this is the one moment on the album where I have another comparison. In case you like this, you may like that. I haven't brought it up in a very long time, uh, but it's actually really reminding me of a, a sort of a metal band, metal, jazz, post-rock, they're all over the place really, that my roommate once got me into called K.O. Dot. I mentioned them very early in the show, but frankly, this is undoubtedly the closest comparison I have to that particular band on this show, is this one section of this one piece. It's a highly avant-garde melody against a slightly heavier backdrop, and with expressionism written all over it. I want to go back and just say, I, I'm really in a different place than you two, because I'm not getting any Fear. And we talked about this a little bit off air, and I have to bring it up here because it becomes a major, I guess, point of contention, but kind of low-key because it's mostly just, oh, we disagree. It's a split on perspective, I'm, I think. I'm curious. I'm actually a little bit on the hopeful side because this expansion, this like sort of vocalization of a character feels more like a sunrise than anything to be afraid of. I feel like I'm getting light here for the first time I mean, I know, I hear that in the climbing, but when has a sunrise ever been painted so darkly? I don't feel darkness. You don't feel dark. I don't feel that aspect. Like, it's not something, I'm curious. I mean, well, unless, all right, unless you think of, you know, Land of the Rising Sun, like, very often that was paired with with warlike themes, in which case, yes, it could spell that something is coming, you know, that's why the flag has, when, when it has the rays out, there is, the, it was used a lot in feudal Japan to mean there's a war on, this, this is a symbol of strength. So but, I could see that connection, for sure. But for me, I mean, if, if we're going for symbolisms, Amaterasu was the light of heaven. I believe her full name actually meant something like the woman who brings light to the heavens. So, I mean, you're talking about somebody that, that as, an, as a, a goddess is like kind of a wellspring of hope or or something to that effect. So, okay. Probably one of the, hold on, one, one of the most profound sunrises I ever witnessed in my life was when I actually drove with uh, my ROTC captain way back in high school in, in Hawaii from one side of Oahu to the other side of Oahu at 4.30 in the morning just to catch the Hawaiian sunrise because honestly, when am I going to get that chance again in my life? And I decided to do that. And believe me, this was not the soundtrack to that experience. But for me, it is. It, it kind of is sort of a, a dawning era. Maybe, maybe it's because I'm. Yeah, maybe I'm a dawning era. But what kind of era? It's uh, maybe it's just because I'm interpreting the, the the things you're attributing to darkness. The two of you seem to be attributing to darkness as more really just unknown alien. Not alien as in from outer space, but alien as is something separate from my understanding. And I'm I'm more just curious and really just enjoying the fact that I don't understand. Well, unknown goes in two directions, typically with the human experience. To fear or to curiosity. That's and usually where it goes, and that seems to be the divide here. But however, my big argument for what... My only argument really for what you're saying is the end. The outro of this track... I call the something happened outro because it really does sound like a sound piece that would be paired with a cacophonous moment of conflict to one end or another. And I don't know what per se, but it's just the cluster of sounds that really, for me at least, cements the darkness and fear I'd been feeling. And also that final little like keyboard like interlude at the very very end before one final chaotic swell like yeah. that was that was pretty that connected me to that i, I felt yeah. that something had happened and it was something probably not of a nature that will be easy to resolve i i guess i mean if, if 
I, I guess because I'm so heavily in, intrigued and enjoying of old and new science fiction, like this to me, it's less Cthulian and more just the idea that something like trans-dimensional, something from outside our escape just kind of showed I, I up. I can do sci-fi too. You, this was a supernova then. Well, actually, know, my New York really go, came out there. I'm going to go really <laughs> nerdy and just say this is more like a trans-dimensional being, like a fourth a supernova. or fifth dimensional being kind of showed up and fit in our dimensions. It's not good. It's not evil. It's not scary. It's not hopeful or Beware. anything like that. It's more just something that you just can't understand because it exists differently than us. Whereas for me, I relate it more to a more science fact human experience with the unknown and alien where likely we'll be cowering and running in circles. And I get more of a sense of that here. It depends. If they visit us, we're probably going to be destroyed. If we visit them, they're probably going to be significantly dumber than, you know, plankton. Right. Well, all of this aside, I think this is a great place to jump to track six, Amaterasu 3. Any place would be a great place to go into Amaterasu 3. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Uh, this kind of follows in that little chaotic swell, actually the little like uh, tritone-based YYZ thing out of, uh-huh. out of Rush, a page out of Rush that we did at the end of the last track and we kind of do here. All the tritones smushed at the front end of this piece. Um, but then the rhythm here is also really, really cool. It's another crazy time signature chain. Six, eight, seven, eight, six, eight, seven, eight. So it does that over and over again. And then the melody against this is pretty interesting because it's still this really, really cool syncopation. The melody here kind of gives an air of jazz, but as it picks up pace... It almost feels closer or akin to acid jazz, even, because it, it's more erratic. It's a, it, it's more vibrant. You know, we're leaning heavily into moving towards a more freeform work again, like we'd been getting in the first piece of this whole album. And this is the first moment that feels the most linked to uh, a Sukatomi that we've gotten yet in this part. I agree with that, but also that is after we get a little bit of a B phrase. That's kind of like the return of a utilizing that syncopation that I just mentioned, that sort of duh, 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 that that forceful three-note pattern beneath this. But we heard in the beginning, and then it's interrupted by a B phrase where we actually get the female vocalist again, just meandering around one key. Very very smooth, but it's mostly like in the same general vicinity, but not really saying anything. It's still just vocalizations at this point, but then when we return back to A, that was really cool because that's when the saxophone melody uh, it, this was this was incredibly fun this is where I absolutely agree with the acid jazz comparison I thought I guess that this was going to be the missing fear the missing drama of the previous piece that I wasn't quite feeling but that voice did a lot to really soothe me and it's kind of weird because the way the voice evolves Definitely doesn't become soothing later on, yep. but it's it's so inviting and so just just kind of like full of hope and happiness and all the good things and marshmallowy that I that, that kids love in life. I don't know that I would go that bright with it, but for oh. sure the the vocals were very interesting and inviting here, and also because of the way the freeform vocalization was reactionary to the track almost, where instrumentation would come in and the vocals would come in right after it almost imitating it but soothing it out yeah i mean there was definitely an inviting nature to it and i thought that it was unique for the album because we had had other vocalizations 
but they didn't react in a way like this previously. They were more integrated, whereas here it's like thought, then other thought, then next thought. Which is weird because I also saw the vocals as leading everything else, even though there was a lot of times it was coming in after well, ideas. I think that's because you were hearing also overhang from the previous moment of vocalization that bled into the next breath, if you will. Well, this actually leads to kind of a chorus. I mean, probably the more chorus-related item that I, we've really had on this album. I mean, it's something that actually makes return later in the album, I believe. This is when the lyrics enter in, it's not just vocalizations, and I, I don't know what they're singing. I, I could not pinpoint whether this was, like, Japanese or Spanish, because that would be also well within the realm of possibility, or maybe even Kobayan, the aforementioned made-up language by Magma. Uh, but it is a, it is a a punctuated theme that actually makes its appearance later in this album as well and it's probably the thing that one of my larger takeaways when I'm just like you know by myself I'm, I'm in the car I'm driving and this pops back into my head it's it's something that that really stands out from the album not that it's my favorite part necessarily but it's like the album theme to me in many ways well because it's also pretty catchy I mean the heightened vocals here remind me of some of the things that System of Down would do in their later part of their career where Surge would kind of create a melody using his vocals, sometimes elongating words, sometimes just making noise, and I get a sense of that here. And it's, that adds to the inviting nature of the vocals. It's kind of cultish almost. And that's where the background effect that the vocals are going through. Because they're frantic. They're, they've got energy going. But they're definitely not the star of what's going on. They're mixed too low to really be the, that the, is the same character. That's a good observation. Yeah. The, the mixing is never really very prominent on the vocals at any point. I mean, so I, don't I think it's supposed to At be. the beginning of the album, I called it a prominent feature. But that's only because I think it's very often paired with some of the the most prominently featured themes. It doesn't yeah. mean that they're mixed high or anything. But the reason I call it cultish is because it sounds like they're trying to summon something. They're yeah. all singing in tandem here. They're not they're also they're oh, also oh, not oh, really oh. singing. That's another thing. They're, they're not necessarily praying. They're praying. Yeah, that's another way to I look mean, at it. I mean, if you're talking about a goddess, prayer should show up sometime, But in right? terms of pitch, it's not the same, like, beautiful crooning stuff we heard earlier. It's no, not, it's like, chanting. comping. It's yeah. chanting. They're, they're actually trying to turn down their own singing abilities for the sake of this section and make it sound like something anyone could just jump in on. So which I really is, wish I knew what they were saying. Well, which works with prayer, with chant, with uh, something like that that is supposed to be not the focus of the singing individual, rather the focus of somebody else, which is which is the feel I'm getting right here. Because it's the theme in the strings, uh, throwing back that kind of Arabian feel that we got earlier back in you know, track two, Working with the kind of the, the the slamming almost, but really background slamming of the keyboard. Yeah. Which is interesting because that was also used just to sort of swing back to, back to the beginning. That was used as the transition right into the first chorus. Like it all boiled down to just the keyboard punctuation, like at a minute and nine seconds. It was just this and then you'll hear it come in randomly throughout the chorus and, and all of the closing material, which is basically the jams that are born out of this chorus. It's just there are moments where it pulls back a little bit then they go in whole hog again it's it's a pretty fascinating section but you have to kind of tap into the cult-like atmosphere in order to appreciate because it because it's fascinating but relentless i mean that yeah. tapping as the track builds and builds and then returns and builds and returns and builds and builds and builds it becomes overwhelming almost because it's continuous and it doesn't really relent eh. until we get to these punctuated moments 
towards the middle to end of the end of the track. Which I believe is the screaming. Yes. Which I don't know no, well, if that's no, no, relenting no. There's, there. Actually, there's a moment before that. Three minutes and two seconds, the saxophone and the violin really entering with this interesting pair, as they've been wont to do. But this is interesting because they're longer tones, much longer tones. I think this was the moment that John actually described almost like bloodletting, which is like it was one instrument the counteracts saxophone. the other here. Yeah, it was specifically the way the saxophone was drawn out of everything But else. remember, they're, well, I don't want to say they're in tandem, but they are playing in exactly the same section, and they're both doing longer tones, but they're not perfectly in line with one another, and that's and what I it find was, kind it of was really that it was, it was almost like you're peeling a layer of, of, of something. I don't want to be gross or grody or anything like weird or anything like that, but it's like it was like you, you got a scab and you're just peeling that layer of scab oh, okay, so off we're clearly, to see something. I don't, I don't think we're, set, we're selling the appealing nature of the section, but, it's, it's, but it actually, I really liked that, and that was a, a, a cool-down moment that preceded the final craziness which I was, with that Matt was describing. Right, which, again, then it returns to the relentless, relentless three, three minute thirty. Yeah. yeah, that screaming was disconcerting. I did not enjoy it. In, and did we start pivoting back and forth from the screaming and the chanting and then screaming and chanting? I was not enjoying this just, It's not just the screaming. There's actually two other things that are also pretty harsh. I mean, I think the violin was doing some kind of like screechy thing here. Like it was scratching horsehair really close to the bridge and that was a little bit of a, a nails in the chalkboard moment for me. And then the squeaky saxophone style of playing. That's another thing. Really just perfect purposely making it a little bit off. True avant-garde hellishness. And then, then of course, the screaming but to boot. So I, if- I barely noticed that, though, because of the rapidity towards the end of the track, that those oh, instrumental them. screeches paled in comparison to the actual screaming, which were louder and more present than any of the other vocalization up until this point. But uh, still- I, I will disagree. That I was actually, I mean, just from my part, I was more affected by the violin screeches than I was by the screaming. Because at least there's the, here's the thing. Screeching, I hear in other bands. That's not unique to this genre. I don't often hear violin being played like that. Or, or maybe it was the saxophone as well, or one of the two, or both at once. I don't know. But that was the thing that actually gave me my nails in a chalkboard moment, akin to what Matt was experiencing last week when there was quite a little bit going on in the that, yeah which that i was totally a, accepting of uh, and was i thoroughly beginning enjoyed of the, it beginning of side b yeah and it was that was that was something i thoroughly loved because it wasn't quite that register here it was sort of one of those evangelical moments where the pastor at the super mega church touches someone they're healed they uh, start writhing on the floor yeah, that okay. snake charmer moment and it did kind of hit me that same sort of way where I was just not enjoying watching it from the outside. I did not quite want to be in that place. So the mantra that shows up with the voices and the string section right afterwards when we start pivoting back and forth between these A's and B's, it felt like I was a little bit uh, of an outsider that didn't quite understand what was going on, that I didn't really want to understand what was going on. Oh, I was it, curious. It no, I wanted the phrase a little bit too much for me. I wanted to know actually, and I, I I would hope to have lyrics at some point in the future. Maybe I'll do that thing. I'll just buy the thing so I have the lyrics at my disposal if they're in the book jacket. Um, all of this said, though, the one thing I will say for the screaming, though, even though I personally didn't enjoy it aesthetically, I think to the purpose of the track and taking us, if I may, into track seven, Amaterasu four, it does connect to the urgency that kind of holds over and the franticness as we begin this next track. And the screaming does kind of set us up for that. So while 
from an aesthetic place, I didn't love it. From an artistic place, again, I'm willing to allow my curiosities to continue to lead me on. And that's where I'm, I want to say I love the way that the rhythm blend through. And that was Uh the biggest blend. But it felt like the rhythm started getting a little bit of an extra beat work, which started pushing the two pieces apart from one another for me. Enough so that I didn't feel like we were just getting an elongated section from three to four. I can confirm where we are. I can't confirm where we were. Right now, I broke this down as an alteration of six, eight, four, eight, six, eight, Five eight, which is really bizarre. I was really thrown by that extra little beat by that in that fourth measure there. I I think that's what it was. I'm not entirely sure, but this was actually really fun, which is why I'm on inclined to really disagree that that empirically the last track had set this up. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy this section. I just I can't really reconcile them. I can't fuse the two together uh, without. Uh, knowing a little bit more, I guess, about what they were chanting or what they were going for. But it was the keyboard and the bass, just in the beginning here, that I was really, really enjoying, just in their little riff. But the violin and the saxophone, when they sort of play their motif alongside this rhythm, that was the part I really enjoyed, because it's, it's the syncopation thing, and they always end with their, their accents a beat and a half before the ends of those above measures. So if it ends on a, on a, a beat and a half before the 6-8 measure, then it's going to be on the, the 5 and. If it ends a a beat and a half before the 4-8 measure, it's going to be on the 3 end. So it's... I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it just from the musical end. I actually saw that and the fact that the... The, the, that extra in the five, the six eight four eight six eight five eight, having that yeah. extra little beat in there with a little bit of a stutter in the strings and sax. Yep, felt I felt like everything that just just couldn't get off the ground. It was one of those another one of those moments where nothing keyboard, really seems actually, yeah. to be getting off the ground. They just seem to be restarting over and over again, and the strings and the sax are just flowing through pitches, but they're really just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, like this is where issues start popping up for me. I think that. That's where my struggle and the connection exists for me, is I felt a similar relentlessness in this track that I felt in the previous track. That plus plus the rhythm introduction I definitely agree with. Yeah, I think that because of that relentlessness connection, even though I did enjoy the keyboard groove here, I did enjoy what the sax was doing, eventually it just still began to feel unwieldy. And even when the vocals come in, those feel unwieldy too. I don't really i i see where you're coming from steve that you found stuff to enjoy here and i'm not saying that there wasn't stuff to like no, i I'm think not. <laughs> i think that overall though this track just felt like more of a variation of what we had gotten already i'm in complete agreement there okay. and actually it's really the beginning of this track that i'm more involved with it's mm-hmm. the end sections that i uh that I'm inclined to agree with you completely because following a certain point, like a minute and 17 seconds, we strip it back to the keyboard and then we get our section B. And following that, you're right, it's not inherently different from one another. It reintroduces these longer tones while the keyboard just sort of emphasizes those accents from before. But it's what really, I think, was my problem with this track and kept me from enjoying it to the same extent as some earlier tracks is that there's an A and B phrase structure to this as with many, many other things. The A part here is the longer tone and the B is the more rhythmic stuff. And they do this a lot, actually. Like, they go back and forth between the A, B, A, B, uh, where A is a thing, you get four bars of it, or however many bars of it, and part B is a thing, too. And it can kind of... You know, this, the fact that you have these crazy time signatures here can kind of mask it a little bit in the fact that, well, all right, I kind of understand how this is broken up a little bit. The last time I had this much of a problem in a prog band that we reviewed 
uh, was actually in, in Coma Ecliptic by Between the Buried and Me, which was a, uh, you brought on back in episode 156. Yeah, it happens. That, that, that was, <laughs> but look, there was cool stuff in that record, too. Yeah. And I think, actually, I like this record. I think this is a more unique record, especially within the prog scene, because it's not prog, it's soil, whatever. But it's just that in the middle part of this album, it is suffering from those prog problems. Either you're on board with it or you're not. You either accept those four bars of a thing or the next few four bars of a thing, or you don't. Or you just, you know, deal with it as part of the process. I can still enjoy it that way. I, I have two things I want to say to that, that, that speech right there. One, one minute, 17 seconds, that's half the track. That's literally half the track at two minutes and 34 seconds. I, I didn't notice that. So say, halfway but... through, we're actually getting a B section. They're giving equal weight to both sides, at least time-wise. But in this B section, one thing you did not touch upon, which I have to was the interest I had in the drums and the bass. Sure. Those were really good and might be some of the best bass work on the album itself. I was, I, honestly, I was ignoring the long saxophone and the keyboard work. I was listening to what the rhythm section was doing pretty much just wholeheartedly. That's all I was focusing on. So there, I was just enjoying it and it was sort of like an electronica trance, like zone out experience that I was, one of the few times on the album where I was approaching it as the intellectual side, and I had learned very early on, approach it intellectually and you will enjoy it. But I was being lied to. I didn't want to do it. I just wanted to just, you know, emote at this section. I personally stand by the beginning of this track. I'm, I'm, I'm really <laughs> I think sticking we're all by in that. agreement. I mean, yeah, I think the relentlessness, again, really comes in towards the end. But also, again, not a long track either. So the relentlessness was definitely more daunting in the previous track. Um, I will say also, John, that yes, the drums and bass were interesting here, and I would agree with your statement if the next track wasn't the next track. Because yeah, I, well, you didn't let me amend it, but okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> in track eight, Amatelatsu 5, it starts with this aggressive rumble from both the bass and the drums together that just give us a sound we have not gotten before. That was a, a real pick-me-up for this album. In yeah. fact, uh, Amaterasu 5, I think, is one of my favorite uh, pieces on the album. And uh, I would be inclined to agree. Probably since track one, although remember, I find uh, Amaterasu uh, 1 was just as intriguing, again, mm-hmm. intellectually, because you have a new piece of texture there as well, even sure. though we weren't all on board. I still think that was an interesting piece. Um, but... This was interesting, yeah, for a different reason. You have that, that running pace motion all yeah. in 8-8, eight, eight, I believe. And actually, this didn't do uh, all the, the time signature change-ups. I believe a lot of this was just straight in 8, and that was it. Mm-hmm. But that opening piano chord, in combination with these two notes on the bass, just this wom 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 and it just bellows throughout much of the piece, actually. Uh, meanwhile, the drums are kind of framing this. It's framing yeah. the running pace on the snare. It, it feels so fast, it's almost like brushwork, but I think it's just a very light touch with sticks. Not sure. But then there's also these beautiful little touches that they throw in here. This little playful end to the bass phrase. Every single time it comes to the end of this cycle, it goes do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. So one and a two, three and a four, and it was just a very playful moment to start over the whole cycle. So yeah, I was really pleased to see more atmosphere again. And it's not very long after this starts, about 35 seconds, that other instruments are introduced, and we get more vocalization again. And this is the single best part of the entire <laughs> album. Like, I don't... This is my favorite track. This is my favorite piece on the entire album. It's also got the coolest thing of all, which is voice and strings that are, like, 
a level of haunting I haven't heard in a very long time. Just pivoting back and forth, going, ah. It's these long tones. Just I mean, swells. So here's the interesting thing. This all right, Tonally, this is an F-sharp minor, but it's very chromatic, and that's right in the register where the vocals are singing. And they perform this sort of rising motion, again in tandem with the violin, but slowly they meander their way there. And eventually this all comes to a head at 1 minute and 22 seconds after they've gone through this 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 process. Then at a minute and 22 seconds, this, this climax that they've reached, or rising action really, just gently breaks. They just gently release, and now a keyboard gently strikes a chord, and then the saxophone rolls along in its wake. It's just this quick, like, one hand, two hand. And the taper off in volume at this moment was just so well executed. It's something I, I, I've really been, been yearning for, for more on this album since uh, the earlier parts. Uh, and because they held, they held back here, they didn't just erupt with something or go from one thing to the, to the next. Like, this section had seen its course, and it was absolutely a beautiful release. And then after that, the keyboard and violin play off this wonderful little idea just to ease you back and yet keep Keep you on the edge of your seat at the same time. Is a couple of examples. Uh, citing the beats here, the the keyboard goes off on this like uh, one and two, and then the violin will echo with this three and four. So one and two, da 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 da, da, da between the two different instruments, and then the keyboard after that on the final eight, going back to the one eight one, and then the violin two a three. It's very playful. Lots of little uh, grace notes in here, or in this case, just the the pickup to the third beat, but. Ah, just beautiful swells with this whole section, the interplay between the instrument, the dynamics, everything was just shivers down my spine. The repartee of that keyboard and string actually gets reproduced later on with the string and sax. And because of how close they've been sounding all album, how like unified, having them actually not working together and being a call and response between the two of them was even more impactful than what the keyboard was doing earlier. Like it was at the next like evolutionary step. Yep. Having additional phrase work and just honestly like like culmination after culmination after culmination with the voices contrasting with the repartee of instruments and like for once not working together, working separately, it was like a bunch of new ideas that works so well to keep it familiar, yet at the same time be just gorgeous. It's a more compositional it's, it's everything. It's a more compositional thing at the end of the day. The call and response dialogue rather than than one person just kind of like talking at you, like I do. You know, just yeah. kind of like going on <laughs> and going on and going on. Because that's what a couple of the previous tracks were doing in the towards the their end. They were just they just kept on going and they didn't feel like they had direction or that there was a, a logical response to them and here they're doing it down to the micro scale for, for sure i mean the relentlessness of the previous two tracks is like you droning on and on and on whereas this track How is, point more, home, why don't you? Is, is more <laughs> erratic and more interesting like me and john intriguingly chiming in from time to time Go back to your notes there i, I got more shit to say <laughs> well the one thing that we're getting here that is so much so much at odds with the rest of the album, and I love that it's at, at odds, is that we're getting releases. Yeah. And we're getting not one or two at the end of an A or a B. We're getting releases over and over and over again. Honestly, this is 
This might actually be the most repetitive of the pieces on the album. No, I can't agree with that necessarily. Because of the I know connection what you're going between for, the, it's not like an A and a B section. It's sort of just an A and an A prime, and then an A and an A prime, and an A and an A prime. Like they're not divergent enough to be full fledged Bs. But they're they're composed and they're recomposed, and actually there are many other sections in this piece. So I can't I can't be on 100 on board with that. But I do want to get to another section that you really uh, adored on this. Um, on this track, and I adored too. I'm gonna say it's sort of the B phrase of a new section. Because I might as well just mention the A if I'm gonna <laughs> describe them as a pair. The A, of course, is two minutes eleven seconds of violin and saxophone duel, which again mm-hmm. enters more of a call and response thing, uh, yeah, but a little a bit, second a little thing. more aggressive than that keyboard violin thing from earlier. That's the A, and then the B phrase of this. It has. This brings back the vocals, and this brings back that volume control again, because this is a swell. I don't know what yeah. they're saying here. It's um, Phonetically, it almost sounds like they're saying unsaya, and then or, that's just, I don't know. I, I don't know inside what, out. Inside. I hear, no. <laughs> All right. Inside out. Hey, it you know what? That. It works. It was that. It works as a stand-in. Yes. Yeah. If, if you were a... Uh, if you were like helping out an actor do his thing, you know, you could just say anything. There's, they just need a placeholder so you I can hope act it's around. Out. I want to know what is inside out. Inside out. I mean, what's interesting here is while the vocals build in a pretty uniformly beautiful swell, the instrumentation is building and getting more chaotic at this point. Like there's, it's like a tornado sucking up things as it goes and that just pulling mine. stuff. You're welcome. I pulling was, I was stu- getting to that. Pulling one. pulling stuff in as it goes, and I I really love that too because. While it feels chaotic, it never feels cluttered or unintelligible. But th- this is a track that I also felt had a, it had a C section and a D section, I think, because by the end of this, it, it starts unwinding into uh, a moment in which you have another, because there's always an A and B phrase, the lyrics start getting extremely worried, and then the violin follows a response to that. And the bass rumble, but in case you've forgotten it, is ceaseless throughout all of yeah. this, the womp, 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 right? And then the, the D section, which is, again, just a placeholder for this final little element, which is another interesting piece of texture, bass harmonics, which is something we haven't seen on this album. And those bass harmonics are absolutely beautiful segue back into the main theme. It, it, this whole thing almost sounded like it sounded like the soundtrack to Manos the Hands of Fate if it were obviously a little bit more flushed out and not paired with a horrible film. And <laughs> and of a better quality. Not that, that it was a bad quality, but this is like the next level. Like the I next mentioned evolution. this before on this series. I actually stand by that soundtrack. If it wasn't as spliced as it was and paired right. with the scenery that it was, yeah, you fair. would have different feelings about it. That's and true. to take back my tornado from Matt, because <laughs> he used, he stole that from me. It was blatant. It was off air. I can't prove it. Uh, this it was a beautiful little eye of the storm going on like home the vocals and home and the safety that it assured us allowed the destruction another theme of of destruction and chaos that just seems to be popping up all over the place at least to my ears it kept us safe in all the cacophony that was going on around us and Mm -hmm. it was it was a safety that i don't think i really heard in any other cacophony we've ever reviewed on this album i mean it's definitely had on this podcast And then it all just screeches to a halt. And so, yeah. Well, that's how a tornado dies. Yeah, well, no, there's a little bit of Yeah, uh, tornado. It's a, don't you know? Tornadoes just disappear and everything falls. Yeah, I don't think it's Actually, no, they die sort of, yeah. Considering the amount of energy. I think it's more. Guys, haven't you seen Twister? Thing. Oh Sorry. my god, <laughs> you kind of just die. I know. Um, it's not a hurricane. They all right, peter around. I think a more apt comparison, John, would have been an asteroid hitting. Because that. 
Believe we're me, screeches to a halt. We're not all dead. No, no. But it's There's not. Like but this wasn't an like extinction Pompeii. level event. Yeah, seriously. Like if an asteroid hit, like we're all dead. Extinction level. And we'll event. never we get pull to that out of deep like impact again. Mm. Movie from nineteen. Actually, the movie, uh, the album by Buster Rhymes called "Extinction Level Event." E L E. All right. We're, um, we're starting to feel the wind down of this album, although we do have one more monster, and that is Amaterasu Six or Track Nine. Yes. And so, speaking to that impact, though, the very beginning of this track is very punctuated it, it it strikes and attacks the way other punctuated moments on this album do and so that in itself is a little familiar mm. to start the track yeah you got the same rumbles as before and mm-hmm. i believe the same time signature but the bass isn't at holding it down actually other instruments were kind of holding down that rumble uh but then you got you got a lot of interesting things in the first few uh, seconds of this. Maybe the first minute. You got these saxophone whirls, this cacophony. There's this building and building. Everything in this album loves that climbing motion. And certainly they go through that again. But then they reach a plateau, which was actually a pretty cool plateau. But following that, it gets pretty rough. Because here, this may be one of the harsher tracks on this album in terms of its sectional variety. And I can't, I, I don't feel right boiling this down in terms of like A, B, C, D. I'm not going to even bother here because that implies that you're that there are defined sections that uh, will be returned to at a later date that there are themes that are returned to maybe you could argue that when I said C and D in the previous track that that was uh, a little more the case of what was going on here but it's okay because at least we had an A and B here you don't have that so much this may be one of my less favorite tracks even though it's the finale on the album but I'll admit it's somewhat better composed in the moment-by-moment stuff. It's just that those section-to-section of transitions or or lack of transitions are are a little bit tough to wrap your head around. This needed a theme, but instead it's all about closing material, pulling from the album. It was, yeah, and that was where I'm, I'm going to make a comparison to another problem I had on the album, which was track three, Tsukotomi three, where I felt like it was trying to do a very quick summation of everything that was going on here it's not quick here it's eight minutes long but it feels like it's just borrowing too many ideas from previously already listened to i mean we already got through 40 minutes of so many different ideas and here it's just like boiling down those 40 minutes to one-fifth scale Uh, i feel like it's one of two things it's either that or it's a collection of incomplete ideas pulled together that are heavily influenced by what came before. The, pro- the prog problem, as right. I yeah. described right. earlier. Because here, it does feel like it's pulling from all over, but I'm still having moments of going, oh, that's interesting. Is, is that new? I oh, think I'm not sure. That's yeah, a good yeah. point. And yeah. it's, it's pretty much, I would actually boil it down to a combination of the two. Yeah, yeah. Old themes and new themes thrown together. And the big kicker of the, the you know, the, the, the four part repetition of everything you go through it four measures of this four measures of that I mean, yeah. you lose something in the mystique of the record when everything repeats four times i mean that simply wasn't the nature of most of this mostly yeah. it's like these extremely intricate compositional mm-hmm. blends between one thing and and the next uh that you're you honestly breaking it down in terms of time signature is almost an afterthought because you heard the music first here i hear blocks first and then i hear the music second i hear yeah. blocks of time uh sort of like we're gonna do 
something here. We're going to do something there. Maybe it was all born of like that form of compositional process. And it's still an interesting process. This is why I'm partial to prog more than other genres. But I, I, I will be dead honest. This is definitely a little bit of a problem that it has. It's just so strange that it's on an album that is shown to do the exact opposite in so many instances. Yeah, I mean... It's serving its purpose as a final track and being a summary of this second overall six-part piece, I don't think is a, a huge fault, but it definitely does weigh on you a bit, especially when we get towards the towards the end of this track. We, they bring back the screaming, too, and it's just... I understand artistically what the screaming is supposed to serve in a similar way that emo music has used, used screaming a lot. It's to add a impact or punctuation moment but they'd done that so well instrumentally that i felt vocally it was unnecessary especially here it was that part that cemented the medley aspect of what was going on here mm -hmm. because it, it it it's sort of like a it's a finale version of an overture that's going yeah. on it's 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 borrowing a lot from here and there and here and there different themes different ideas and just saying this was here this was there this was here this was there new ideas are showing up but it wasn't doing anything that was wild. Like, every other track was doing stuff that was wild. Even if I wasn't enjoying it, it was still, you know, different. The only the only caveat argument I would say that makes it at least a little more interesting is I do feel like this one is taking from Sukutomi and Amaterasu, whereas part three of Sukutomi was really only taking from those other two parts. Yeah, well, that was a mini finale overture, I the, guess, uh, or yeah, mini finale explanation. Well, comprehensive one. Yeah, yeah. And even then, uh, at the end of the day, I think Sukutomi 3 was new material. It definitely was new yeah. material in the same feel, yeah. but I do believe this is older material. Yes. This uh, is I, more I, I of don't, a I, I honestly don't know on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, but I, I was hard-pressed to find those singular themes in this that were as interesting, but I don't want to like just write off this entire track it still is a viable finale I, I, I still enjoyed a lot of individual material I just as a piece it was not as engaging as the as any of the former pieces uh, especially a little of this is just the fact that it follows track eight which was this in my view a compositional masterpiece um, and I've been kind of expecting that level ever since track one, which I also think was a comp uh, compositional masterpiece. So um, I'm almost inclined to go into a wrap-up, but I don't have to because I picked the album. Yeah, and he, you get to be a little bit of a little bit of a prick when we start doing that sort of stuff. So I'll go first because I rarely go first because I usually put well, I usually don't. <laughs> That's what I have to say about that. What's the opposite of volunteering? Uh, sacrifice. Mm, actually, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I push somebody else to be a sacrifice, Matt. I, I love enjoyable things. I love intellectual things, but I love these two things separately. Intellectually, this was an extremely stimulating album. There wasn't a whole lot of just enjoyment built into it for me, but it was very thought-provoking. It's uh, the only thing I can really relate it to in recent memory for me is is um, the TV show Stranger Things, and I will not do a spoiler, but there's a reason I'm bringing this up. I don't know if I like that TV show. I know I enjoyed parts of it. I know it was very well written. I know that it was extremely well acted, but I don't know if I really enjoyed it. It was just the intrigue around the show, the intelligence behind everything, and the story interconnecting effects that kept drawing me in. Same thing's going on here. I don't know if I'm enjoying every little aspect of it, and I feel like in some ways I should, and I'm just not getting it because it's another one of those 
I'm going to keep bringing it up, that Rubik's Cube of trying to solve what's going on here. And I like the meat of that. I like the, 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 you know, the approach of, all right, this is a problem. Then again, I'm using terms like this is a problem. This is, you know, I have to intellectually digest it and things like that. That's not purely positive. <laughs> Problems can't just be positive. And I'm, it's a very important word to look at here. So I like dissecting it. I like all that aspects associated with it. It's obviously virtuosic in so many aspects just because it's – I don't know anybody that can reproduce stuff like this. This is this is really really intense stuff, even when it's calm. So like it's it's got so many positives to it, but the fact that I don't really feel like I can dive in—not that it's pushing me away or anything like that—which is problems I've had with other albums in mm-hmm. a similar vein in the past. I want to make that distinction. It doesn't feel like it's cold, or it doesn't feel like it doesn't want to invite me in. I just feel like. I'm not quite getting it. I, I feel like it's something I'm going to have to puzzle over for a long time. It's a Sudoku book. Not a puzzle, but a book. And I'm going through each little piece, and i got to make sure I put my numbers in the right spot. And if I screw up, well, I'm going to have to go back a little bit and reanalyze this and figure that's it out what better. what reviews are for. Yeah, yeah, and that's where when I'm When we're lazy and this... we don't want <laughs> <we're laughs> to cop out at the end of the episodes. No, no, I'm not copping out on this one. This one, I think I'm going to... In fact, I'm probably going to call it now. In 12 months or... 11-ish months, I'm going to revise this review. Probably higher. I hope, hopefully higher. Yeah, could be lower. It might be lower. I I won't lie. But it's 4.6. Like, really solid number. I'm really high up, especially considering so many 4.5s. And I want to make that distinction. It's not a 4.5. It has crossed over into the high territory at a 4.6. But it's not higher yet. It's not quite there. And I think it'll sit... And grow from there, hopefully. You know, just to interject before Matt goes, I, I do believe that it is important that at this stage in the series, especially now that we do so much more active listening in advance and note-taking and breaking down and digesting over the week that we have it, I think it's important still to leave a little portion of our earliest and, yes, crappiest episodes, which was the idea that Back then, our philosophy was, you know, what a, a fresh listen from a new listener. This was the first impression that you had of the album, which is more true to a traditional review. Since then, we haven't really been a review show. We've been an analysis show, and we like to stay closer to that. But you still pay homage to that, that, that portion of it in your review, which I'm glad John is doing, because that, that will probably be the way the public will view your album, or closer to it, at least. Well, and it's also important to point out here and as i go into my wrap up i know i miss stuff here i know even with all of our details and discussion here we miss stuff yes there's a lot here and i think one thing i want to say off the bat especially about soil and my experience with it now besides what you brought on our homework assignment um which i have to come up with more of those because i like making you guys work um (laughs) and me and me it makes me work too um I find as we discover more new finger quotes genres, they end up just giving me epiphanies that these genres just are like other genres. Like it was my full exposure to Prague, I realized, 
oh, but you could have prog metal or prog grunge or prog punk or whatever. And I feel like Zoil somehow is similar in its way. It pulls from classic rock. There's jazz influence. There's fusion influence. Like, there's a lot here and there's a lot of meat. You need eight hyphens for it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so it does get to the point in that way. Um, I mean, this album is phenomenal as far as how we engage with it. I think something that's been really impressive about the stuff we've brought on lately for the most part, is that we've engaged with it in a very different way. And I think that's where this album gets high marks. I mean, the arc and the theme are solid, if not a little obscured, but still fairly solid. Like, you know it's there, but... Not quite sure what it is, but you know it's there. It's definitely there. You just have to clean it up a little bit. But but I think for me here, I've not engaged with an album on this level before. I think the closest... It was another recent review when we did Chili Gonzalez. Um, shout out to Chili Gonzalez, by the way, who hit us up on our Crash Chords Facebook page um, and gave us some insight, which Steve will read on uh, next week's episode. But coming back to this, I think also, and why I gave that really good marks, and I'm inclined to give this one good marks as well, is it just it made me think in a way that didn't that felt like work, but work I wanted to do. And I mean, the albums that make us work and do the work we don't want to do is just as important. But here, I think I enjoyed engaging with the material more than I enjoyed listening casually to the material. And I think that's important here. I think on a casual listen for this album, you completely miss the point. This is not for casual listen. Whereas like last week's album, you miss parts of it, but you can still get some broad strokes here. You will miss the point if you are casually listening to this album. It's designed to be engaged picked apart with and constantly explored like a great video game or an awesome movie. You go back time and time again and find new stuff. Some of the more intricate movies that I really love, every time I go back, I notice something different. Whether it's a comic book movie that just has so much going on or it's actually an intellectual piece that you really have to pick apart and think through. Here too, this is something that I like to really enjoy breaking it down and I will go back to when I'm sitting at my computer with nothing to do other than engage in something auditorily and so for that it gets really high marks um, and I think I'm, I'm I'm in a similar vein to where where John is but I also have to agree I just I'm not gonna put this towards closer to a five so early in the year because I just feel like I'm just being overly ambitious I think it's definitely for me four or five territory, but I think I'm a little gonna be a little more conservative here and be it's only a, a four point five five. Jeez, wow, yeah, okay. You're, the most you're, you're critical saying, guy in no, the no, beginning no. of the series of but my crazy remember. decimal points has become the craziest. You gotta yeah. remember, four point five to five is a much wider gap than zero to four point five, regardless of the actual numbers involved. Yeah, that is true. And and I would say the reason I, I there's actually a reason why I want to give it a four point five five, and it's because it, it reflects my um, constant evolution of exploring it. The fact that it's not a 4.5 or a 4.6, it's between them because, A, as we discussed, there are miles between a 4.5 and a 5, but also it reflects my struggle to continue to digest, enjoy, and discover this record. But the second that you cross 4.5, you're you're in... You have the capacity to, to change people's minds about music. And for sure. Probably and one they of the most important things. definitely can do that, for sure. All right. Your turn. 
Um, well, first of all, on your little note there that music should be listened to, someone just took a page from that video that I recently posted on the <laughs> yes. Crash Chords webpage, Robert Estrin's uh, little explanation on music pollution and how it could pose a problem for the future generation and that we have to sit and listen to catch the details because, of course, this is an album that I I do believe would suffer in certain settings. I admittedly, uh, it suffered for me in certain settings, even just in our pre-album listen, which is always a good final run-through for for us as a group to just sit down and, and talk about uh, the album and kind of present some views to each other and just see how it sounds in a group, which is not something that everyone gets to do with uh, music or fresh music that they love. This uh, suffered a little bit to me in that environment only because of exactly what Robert Estrin was talking about in that video. Uh, go look it up, uh, livingcanos.org, um, music pollution. And the problem is, of course, that if you're trying to focus on things in, in, in the background, which in which case we were focusing a little bit on our interim discussions amidst the album, wow, you miss so much and you have to pause so much, which in a, in a group setting is also a little bit problematic because then when you pause, you miss stuff. You miss stuff in the overall minute-by-minute uh, arc of the piece, that once you break up the flow, then you really have broken up a, a crucial part of the rising action and a part of the climax. You can't really do that so much. So for me, this was really at its best on a purely focused headphones listen when I was listening to entire tracks without having to to do those, those pause marks in order to get what I want to get out on various different sections. And believe me, there was so much to get out. On track one, I, I really was ready to dub that the masterpiece of this album, and I was ready to say that that was about it for masterpieces on this album, that the, the stuff after that suffered in a few too many ways here and there for me to consider them perfect pieces front to back, and then I really uh, digested track eight and realized it is just as much of a masterpiece. I... I it's not that the, that the rest of the album, though, is like so far removed from this. It's only sitting like a, just a notch lower than those two pieces, even if it suffers from some of the prog problems that I described earlier, and the fact that certain sections do feel like they're a little bit long-winded or like they lack a little bit of direction. That's not that big of a problem for me, because overall here, and that's something that I would normally uh, really harsh an album for more than I'm harshing this particular album for, because they did something, miraculously they did something at the end of the day, we don't find a lot of albums. There's so much album connectivity. There's so much connectivity between the beginning and the end and the middle over the full album 50-minute cycle that I, I sense that this was all very meticulously conceptualized, if not always meticulously composed. So again, it goes back to the macro scale, micro scale. This is the macro um, in many ways, but there are still those moments that are just, they're just great. I wish they were a little bit more numerous um, over the course, but then it wouldn't be the album that it is. You need those palate cleansers, and sometimes a palate cleanser can be like putting salt right on your tongue. It'll cleanse your palate, all right, but it's it's not too enjoyable on its own. I, this puts me in a weird position here. I know it's over the 4.5. I uh, I don't know how high yet, but I, I think right now I'm edging right where John is. I think it's a 4.6. I think it is... I think that's the perfect rating for this right now. There, there are a few interim things within the tracks and the development of those tracks that I think would need to be just shored up for it to be a little bit higher on my list, but this is doing so much over the course that it, it, it really needs to be in the upper echelon and a notch above that for actually having a theme and really sticking with it over the course. We don't know much about the 
the literary theme here, but I, I see the story from the musical end, so as far as I'm concerned, the literary is really of no consequence. All they needed was to tell me Sun God, Moon God, the rest is a, a story of their own device, and I want to see more of it. Alrighty, well then. I think it's time for Professor Steve to educate us on our uh, musical term of the week. He's been educating us a lot today. That's true. And I, I have to mock him at this point. It's, it's just tradition. Well, this is an easy one, actually, and, and it actually is tied to the record. Uh, and using your etymological skills, I will ask you how you would perform a piece or a section of a piece if you were confronted with the term bellicoso. I oh, assume that's... loud. I assume mm, loud. Like, Mr. Yeah. Italian over here, really? Yeah. Uh, I would say... Beautifully? No, nah, now you're colder. Um, I would say um, more uh, fervent, maybe? Warmer. All right. Uh, m more frantic? Warmer. Uh, more chaotic? Warmer still. Huh. Um, I like this game. I like Bella is like, but but that's uh, like... I keep going understand. with that. Be Bell, what else is that a prefix for? This is too fun. Belladonna? No, she's like he swings back the other a, way. Which is a ice cold. It's, it's a poison. Ice cold. <laughs> I'll just tell you, bellicoso, from belligerent, uh, is warlike and aggressive. Ah, all right. I was getting warm. Yeah, I like that. Bella and belligerent is different pronunciations because we Americans, well, English in general, you said Americans. You you had an A in there. It's American. I'm not that American. <laughs> that's fair. Fair enough. We butchers terminology. Yeah, we got fair. into a question about salve and salve. Earlier, like it was a thing. Well, yeah. you know, all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are we right doing along. next week, Matt? So, in the um, spirit of leaning more towards some independent stuff at the beginning of the year, 2017, which I think is a good place to go, um, I've always said when we bring artists on the show that are independent artists, we I want to promote their stuff rather than review it. This is an independent artist that I have not had the benefit of meeting yet, so I'll take his stuff on on the show, and I think it's an interesting case. So, if you are into video games or nerdery in general, but not necessarily nerdcore rap, um, you might have heard the indie rapper from Britain, Dan Bull. He's done tons of stuff for video games. Um, he's had 11 albums in under a decade. From 2009 to 2017, his 11th album, We Will Be Doing Hip Hop Array by Dan Bull. He's had a mix of um, variations on the theme Generation Gamer, which are all of uh, pretty much a compilation of his gaming songs. But he's also released albums um, titled Safe and... Um, I'm forgetting the titles of a few others, but um, those albums were more about his personal life. He's rapped about his struggle with Asperger's, and he's rapped about, you know, growing up as a kid in Britain and getting into trouble. And his new album delivers more of that. There's there's drama, there's honesty there, but honesty here actually means something musically because it's about the content of what he's rapping. And so I thought it'd be interesting to bring him on also because I've talked at length about nerdcore, which you'd think is pretty obvious if you rap about nerdy things, you're nerdcore. But as far as I know, Dan Bull doesn't associate with that movement. I don't think he disassociates either. I think he just considers himself more of an independent rapper. I, I respect that notion. Not, yeah. not that I like, have a thing against nerdcore, but I, I do think it. you really limit yourselves the second you say, like, that's the only thing I'm going to rap about. Right. Why not just, you know, casually enter it in as you feel is appropriate within your work, well, I think as an a, interest of yours. I think there's a difference between a nerdcore rapper like MC Frontalot and a rapper like Shea for the Dark Lord, who 
is part of the nerdcore scene, but doesn't necessarily only consider himself a nerdcore rapper. Yeah, and so it's more, it's more of a marketing thing, I think, than anything sure, else. Of course. And so that said, Dan Bull absolutely embraces his nerdery, and I think Hip Hop Hooray is a great example of his work. And so we'll be taking that on next week. So right. I mean, with with names like Darkest Souls, Hitman, For Honor, or For Honor. I, yeah. love, I like how he has yeah, 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 yeah. It was actually um, nice. He's actually done rap songs about Monopoly. Overwatch. Yeah. Battleborn. So, this is just one of yeah. his Generation Gaming albums yeah. in No Man's Sky, yeah. which honestly should be, just be a completely silent track. <laughs> right. But, um, but, um, but I'm excited to take it on also because of the impressive catalog <laughs> of 18 records in a decade. I mean, that's Adam Warrock level of constant release. Yeah. He also, it should be said that he's a YouTube generation rapper as well. He makes a lot of music videos, he's done a lot of vlogs, and so he's a really connected indie artist. Yeah, if you're an indie rapper, you do need to, especially if you're starting out, you need to like really pump him out with a little more frequency than a signed rapper would. And so he's done quite a bit of work in a short amount of time. So we'll take that on next week. Please join us, and until then, remember, as always, music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.